When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Howdy everybody, CJ here, your cowboy in the jungle, and renaissance man in this new dark age. Back with another dose of Dangerous History. And in this episode, I'm really happy to share with you a recent, in-depth conversation with the one, the only, Scott Horton. The greatest slayer of both establishment narratives about wars and foreign policy and slayer in debate of neocons. Of course, some of you may remember, a little over a year ago, Scott Horton debated one of the kings of the neocons, Bill Crystal, and basically obliterated him. I mean, it was so bad that I almost felt bad for Bill Crystal, and I had to remind myself just how much blood he has on his hands by proxy through all of the war propagandizing he's been doing for decades. For the tiny number of you who might not know who Scott Horton is, he is, in my opinion, the greatest guru of wars and foreign policy in kind of the overlapping worlds of anti-war and libertarianism. And he is OG when it comes to that sort of stuff. A brief formal bio of him would be that he is director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, host of Antiwar Radio on Pacifica 90.7 FMK PFK in Los Angeles. And he hosts the Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org, also available wherever you get your podcasts. He's the author of several books, including Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and he is editor of the book The Great Ron Paul, Scott Horton Show Interviews, 2004 to 2019, and also the editor of the 2022 book Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Arms. Scott has conducted more than 5,700 interviews since 2003. And I've been a huge fan of Scott ever since I first came across his work, probably approximately 2007 or so. And he was one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. I'm not sure if he was the first, but he was certainly in like my first three or four podcasts that I ever listened to way back when I was still manually downloading the MP3s off of websites and putting them onto my actual iPod. This is before I even had a smartphone, I don't even know if smartphones were already set up for podcasts that early or not. I honestly don't know. I didn't get a smartphone until I was actually founding the DHP back around 2014. 
And honestly, if I didn't have a podcast, I probably would be walking around with like a jitterbug phone in my pocket. But anyway, I had Scott on primarily to talk about the backstory and what's really going on, which of course is very different from the mainstream media narrative in regard to the Russo-Ukraine war. But our conversation free-ranged all over the place, and we touched on other topics as well, including even some Woodrow Wilson bashing. Scott's been on the DHP multiple times, I think two, maybe three times in the past, but it's been several years since the last time I had him on, so I was very happy to get him back on again to share his expertise. But before I flip it over to my conversation with Scott, recorded a few days ago, I have to give some more shout-outs to excellent individuals who contributed to my Indiegogo campaign, which, by the way, is still ongoing. And if you'd like to contribute and help me out while simultaneously getting various perks and benefits, depending on your level of contribution, I will make sure to put the link to it in the show notes of this episode. So, special thanks. For contributing to my Indiegogo campaign, go to Young Williams, Mike Pershing Jr., 77 Lark, Interpreter on Time, Jeffrey Stockman, Barrett Brown, Austin Sawade, Jake Tucker, Ethan Yoder, Dean Bartlett, Chris Warren, Bryant Boren, Tuval Cole, John Nyman, Junior Hendricks, Dan Herrett, Jeff Carter, Nelson Ferreira, Vince Perfetto, and Kevin Lair. Thank you all so very much for contributing to my Indiegogo campaign. And in addition to reminding you that that is still ongoing and you can still contribute and still get perks, I would also encourage you to consider signing up to support me on an ongoing basis via either Patreon or Subscribestar. And there's a lot of different perks, including some ones I've added pretty recently over the last month or two, available depending on your level of contribution. But without further ado, let me turn it over to my recent conversation with the great Scott Horton. Okay, so I'm very happy to have Scott Horton back uh, after several years, uh, back again on the Dangerous History Podcast. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're not uh, too uh, uh, hungover with uh, Thanksgiving festivities and uh, all that kind of stuff since it's uh, Black Friday as we're recording this? Well, I did eat a hell of a lot of dead bird yesterday, but... Uh... No, I'm doing okay, man. Just okay. Well, I'm going to weigh on the book here. Cool. All right. Well, I wanted to have you back on just because you are, you know, the, the number one uh, guru of foreign policy in both kind of like the, the anti-war and libertarian sort of overlapping uh, Venn diagram worlds. And it, it's hard for me to even keep track of just how, how crazy um, the world has been going in terms of, of wars and tensions and foreign policy and whatever. But I guess I want to start with the whole Russia-Ukraine thing. So my first thing that I would ask you is like, what do you think is really the best place 
because I know that you know, as I do as well, that one of the ways that uh, the the propagandists of the establishment and whatnot, one of the ways they shape the narrative is by being very selective on when they drop the needle on the record of a particular story, right? So mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, oh, 9-11, that's suddenly that's when- That's a good way to put yeah. it. I'm going to steal that and try to remember to quote you from now on, but I'm definitely stealing it. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome to it. Um, You know, so obviously if you start- the history of U.S. relations with, you know, the the Middle East on 9-11-2001, it looks like a very different story versus if you, you know, drop it a few decades earlier or 60 years earlier or whatever like that. So what do you think to get a, obviously the media wants to start the Ukraine-Russia story on, was it February 24th, I think of this year and like, boom, suddenly, you know, Putin just attacked Ukraine because he's a jerk or whatever. Um, but where would you say is is the best place? I mean, obviously, you could go all the way back to like medieval times and, you know, Kiev and Rus or whatever like that, because these places, you know, have very deep history. But um, to get a, a fairly balanced understanding of what's really going on uh, and where this conflict really came from and, and all the blame that can be spread around, what do you think is the best? Uh, would, it, would it be uh, the end of the Cold War? Would it be? Uh, when NATO started to expand, despite the promises made at the end of the Cold War, would you would you start the story well, that's in twenty fourteen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, look, I mean, it depends. I think yes, for our purposes, you can basically start with thirty years ago. It's probably worth pointing out that these borders in Eastern Europe have changed many times over the eons through violence and. You know, there was a time where this was all the Lithuanian kingdom and then it was, you know, half of it was under the rule of the Poles and the other half of the Russians. And then, of course, it was all under the Soviet Union and the modern borders of Ukraine were drawn by Lenin about 100 years ago. And then, you know, in 1954, Khrushchev, in a play for power to replace Stalin after his death, essentially to shore up support from the Ukrainian Communist Party, gifted them the Crimean Peninsula. So, you know, that's sort of part of the backstory. Although you can still probably start with H.W. Bush and refer back to that when you get to Crimea and the story, that kind of thing. I hate to say, but I've given a two-hour speech on this. If you just go to antiwar.com slash Scott, it's two or three articles ago. It's called The History Behind the Russia-Ukraine War. And I'm adapting that into a book now with my co-author, Daryl Cooper, of the Great Martyr Made podcast. And it's called Provoked, America's Role in the Russia-Ukraine War. And I'm way behind, but I promise I am working on it. And uh, so that's the overly long version. But essentially, what you need to understand is that when the Soviet Union was beginning to unravel, the uh, uh, Gorbachev government in, you know, regime in the Soviet Union agreed to withdraw from Germany on the promise from the Americans that they would not expand NATO, even into East Germany. Now, the Americans since then have tried to say, no, no, no. All we ever said is that we wouldn't expand NATO into East Germany, but we never said anything about Poland or anywhere else. But that's not true. And we know from the National Security Archive at George Washington University now, they have published numerous documents showing, and uh, even early this year, uh, new minutes of meetings were revealed showing that they promised over and over again. And we have the words of Robert Gates, who was the director of the CIA at the time, who later said that, yes, of course, you know, we led them to believe that we would not expand NATO into the East. Now, 
for years, they denied there was any such promise. Then they said, well, okay, but it's not in writing. And then all these agreements in writing were revealed. And they said, well, but it's not a treaty, which is true. That's the New York Times latest version of the argument. Well, we never signed a treaty with Gorbachev promising never to expand NATO into Eastern Europe. But nobody ever said that treaties are the only standard of international negotiations and so forth. I mean, Kennedy gave a binding to this day, for some reason, the most magical security guarantee to the Soviet Union that America would never again invade Cuba to regime change Castro or even his successors now. And they stuck to that. It was part of the deal to end the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was no treaty there. It was a secret agreement between the attorney general, the president's little brother, who uh, worked through a back channel to make the agreement with the Russians. Still a deal. But they act like, oh, yeah, no, we hide behind all these technicalities because they're dishonest. They're yeah, well, doing what they wanted. Go ahead. To, to, to me, it's very revealing just how much they move the goalposts, right? Because they start with there, there was no promise to you know, not expand NATO. And then it's, well, there was, but it wasn't on paper. And then that gets revealed to be bullshit. And then they go, well, it was on paper, but it wasn't, you know, a formal treaty. And, you know, I mean, we know that there isn't a formal treaty because we don't know about it if there was. But imagine if somehow like they uncovered a secret, you know, vault somewhere that said, oh, actually, there, here it is, a treaty that the, the Senate just, you know, uh, ratified back in the 90s without any, any publicity. Um, they'd still move the goalposts again somehow. Be like, well, it's a treaty, but it's, you know, whatever that they'd find some technicality. And that's right. To, to me, well, that, just, might that just reveals from, they're being dishonest. Of course. And well, a couple of things. I mean, remember um, a few months ago when the pranksters got a video call with George W. Bush and they said they are pretending to be Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. And they said, ha ha, ha your father promised the Russians that he would not expand NATO eastward. But we just do whatever we want. Right. Ah, ha, ha. And W. Bush goes, hey, times change. Yeah. Right. Um, I'd forgotten about that one. That was that yeah. was an amusing little blip for for like a couple of days. And then it disappeared yep. in the memory hole. Uh, and then you might remember, too, that a year ago when Putin was making his demands, he said, listen, we want no further NATO expansion eastward. But where you already have expanded, he wasn't saying I demand you kick these nations out of NATO. He didn't say that. But he said, I demand that you pull all of your military equipment back like in the deal of 1997. And they all acted like he was talking about the deal of 1697. What the hell do you mean, 97? That was the last century. What is he even, what could he possibly be talking about? This raving nut was how they characterized that. Well, what was it? It was Bill Clinton in an agreement, but not a treaty, but a solemn promise Sorry, guys, we can't give you a treaty, but we'll give you our solemn promise that even where we bring new nations into NATO, we won't move our military equipment into those countries. We won't expand American bases. We won't put our troops there. And, of course, they're in violation of that. And they treat him like a total kook for even bringing it up. But that sounds kind of important. Sounds like part of what they had to tell the Russians at the time to get them to go along. Now, I had really just blamed the Clinton government, but what I learned uh, recently, there's an academic at Texas A&M who did this exhaustive study of this where he showed 
that James Baker and Brent Scowcroft and George H.W. Bush, they were lying and they were screwing the Soviets all along that we won, we get what we want. And ultimately, they had proposed this deal, the Partnership for Peace. And they told the Soviets and then the Russians that, look, we're going to change NATO essentially into a political organization. And in its place as a military uh, security situation in Europe, we're going to replace it with the Partnership for Peace and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which they changed the name, but same difference. And you guys can join. And Russia can join and Georgia can join and everybody can join. And, you go, yeah, we'll go as far as the Caspian Sea here. And you all be in the Partnership for Peace. And But they were lying and they knew all along that that's not what they were doing. That's just what we have to tell these suckers until we get away with expanding NATO. And they won't be able to do anything about it. But we've got to be able to roll them back far enough first. And then what's interesting, you may know this, uh, but many people don't, is that all they wanted is what they call Eastern Europe. But that's all west of Ukraine and the Baltics. They didn't imagine at the time that they were going to bring in, or the Baltics maybe, but Ukraine, come on. We're only talking about Eastern Europe here. We're not talking about Ukraine. Ukraine is east of Eastern Europe, you know? And in fact, the Soviet, the Bush government, Bush Sr.'s government, James Baker, uh, his Secretary of State, they tried to save the Soviet Union. By the way, how much time do we have? Because I'm giving the long version here, I can tell already. Oh, I don't, I don't have any, uh, anything else going on today. All right. I mean, you want the long version here? Well, I'm starting well, to elaborate. Bush Sr. famously gave the Chicken Kiev speech in August of 1991. That's what William Sapphire, the neocon hawk of the New York Times, called it. And what Bush says in there is two things. He says, listen, if you're ever going to break away from the Soviet Union, you're going to do it on Gorbachev's timetable. He's my buddy and I'm with him. And I'm warning you that I don't have your back. And I guess he anticipated that the Soviet Union would try to clamp down and prevent them from leaving. Uh, Then Belarus and I think the Baltics at that time, too. Um, Yeah, in fact, yes, and the Baltics, too. And he warned the Ukrainians, and the speech was written by Condoleezza Rice. And he warned the Ukrainians against what he called suicidal nationalism, which was a reference to, I guess, the war that had broken out in Georgia over their secession from the Soviet Union a couple of months before. And was also, I think, a reference to far right wing nationalists who, as the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Bush Sr. must have known very well, you know, were a potential active force in Ukraine and a potential, you know, wild card. And he's telling them, listen, we don't have your back. So don't get out ahead of your skis here. Now, the Baltic states, I think Lithuania declared independence a week later or something. And, and then Estonia and Latvia followed suit very quickly after that. And Ukraine went ahead and declared independence, what, three weeks later, four weeks later? And then the whole thing was over by December. So they told Bush Sr., go to hell. They were doing what we want. And when they declared independence, Russia couldn't stop them. And that was the end of the Soviet Union. And the red flag came down on Christmas Day. So there's a couple of points there, right? Is you know, First of all, this is pretty disgraceful and horrible. No wonder it's kind of suppressed history. The Bush senior tried to save what was left. Now, remember, especially for young people, you know, when you talk about Romania and Poland, 
um, and the, uh, you know, uh, Czechoslovakia, these were Warsaw Pact states under Communist Party dictatorships under the rule of the Kremlin, right? Part of their military alliance, but absolutely under Soviet domination. But the Soviet republics, that was the Baltics, Belarus, Ukraine, and then the southern, you know, the stands in Southern Asia, right? Or Central Asia. So um, there is a difference between the actual USSR and what we broadly considered at the time to be the Soviet Union, which was everything east of the Elbe River, including all of East Germany and, and Poland and the rest. Uh, but anyway, so they wanted to break up all those Warsaw Pact states, but they wanted to hold together the republics and the USSR because they didn't want to deal with the headache, essentially. Um, but then it all came down uh, heroically and wonderfully against their will anyway. Um, but the other point there was about Bush Sr. knowing that there's potential trouble here and it's too far east of America to really be our concern. And, you know, at that time, too, I think probably there was somewhat of a good motive in, as they repeatedly put it, that Bush said, I'm not dancing on the Berlin Wall and rubbing it in the Soviet Union's face. Essentially, he was trying to play it very cool in order to not provoke a more, I hate to say it, but right wing reaction among the conservative old leaders of the Communist Party, if that makes sense, that if he had gone and tap danced on the Berlin Wall and said, ha ha, your Soviet Union is falling apart, that would have empowered reactionary forces inside the Communist Party to try to hold the thing together longer. So his more genteel sportsmanlike behavior during that time, at least on the surface, probably helped to unravel the Soviet Union and prevent those forces from being able to rise back to stop it. Um, and at a couple of points, it was Harry. You know, there's a potential, there was a, an attempted coup d'etat there that lasted a day or two. And in fact, in that case, uh, I, I'm 99% sure there's a senior announced publicly that he would not recognize the new coup government and that he stood behind Gorbachev and Yeltsin in, you know, against the hardliners. That was in this, in the summer of 91. Anyway, but Long-term, the plan was we're going to expand this military alliance at their expense. Now, so Clinton comes in and there's a tension in his government and his old buddy, Strobe Talbot, initially wanted to focus on uh, the partnership for peace. And that was spun at the time. And, you know, somewhat rightfully, I think, as a real danger, as a, this is what at the time as a, a young conspiracist, I thought is what Bush Sr. really meant by the new world order it meant a real one world government under the United Nations with Iraq as their first big whipping boy as the Cold War was ending and with America and the Soviet Union and then Russia working together and eventually merging together as the one white army of the North. Something like the Partnership for Peace in a way would be the same thing as making Russia a full partner in NATO. Now you got the one white army of the North, NATO, serving as the, the one world army of the UN, essentially this kind of thing. And I think that is what Strobe Talbot wanted, frankly. Like that sounds like conspiracist stuff, but he wrote this article in Time Magazine called The Birth of the Global Nation. Now we will all soon recognize a single global federal authority on earth under the UN Security Council, et cetera, like that. So um, anyway, but they lost out 
to the right because these guys were never going to share power that much power with the Russians. Like the Germans basically go along with the Americans, but if they're going to bring Russia into NATO, they're going to have to take their opinion into account more than they're willing to do, especially for a vanquished enemy, that kind of thing. So instead they were really just jerking their chain and playing them along and, and, you know, blowing smoke up their ass and telling them, Oh yeah, no, we're going to have, we're, yeah, we're expanding NATO, but don't worry. We're not going to expand our forces. And, we're going to have this uh, Russian NATO council where we're going to uh, eventually integrate you in and we're going to take your opinion into account all the time and this kind of thing. They never really meant it. At the same time, the Clinton government sent the Harvard boys over there to aid and abet and with Al Gore kind of chairing the commission to aid and abet the worst kind of kleptocrats who just liquidated everything and, and just completely destroyed what was left of the Russian economy. I mean, imagine a real ass Marxist economy where the government owns everything, where prices are decided by committee on this crazy scale, like a real ass communist country. And then it falls and the Americans come to give them American style capitalism, they claim, and their standard of living and life expectancy and everything falls completely through the floor. And among like uh, working age or fighting age males, uh, life expectancy drops by what twenty percent or something like that because of violence and crime and alcoholism and suicide and just just total destruction of their economy because they didn't create a regime of actual like libertarianism. What works is property rights uh, and real protections for them in civil courts and free market capitalism. They just, we just gave them big business, right? We just gave them like a few, you know, helped a few oligarchs take over everything and liquidate what they don't want and just keep all the money, send it overseas, um, grind certain industries just to a halt, uh, and then otherwise monopolize the hell out of the ones that they wanted to keep. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think the vast majority of Americans, because it wasn't really covered much at the time and, and doesn't get mentioned hardly at all since other than, you know, by, by people like you and I and our, our sorts of folks, but like the Russian people and economy got completely exploited and it collapsed into like hyperinflation. And I mean, just, you know, almost like a, seems to me like a lot of the nineties, Russia was almost in like a post-apocalyptic kind of thing, like in the aftermath of world war two or something, as far as just how much everything was messed up. And it's always, um, well, not always, but ever since I, I kind of really, you know, read into that, like just how bad uh, things got in Russia in the 90s and just how much uh, Westerners, particularly Americans, you know, like those Harvard boys really took advantage of the situation, you know, for all they could. It struck me that basically what you're looking at uh, in Russia from, say, the end of the Soviet Union until, I don't know, maybe approximately 2010 or so is a slow motion version of the Treaty of Versailles uh, against Germany in World War I, where you have uh, the victorious side not being, you know, generous and magnanimous and honorable in victory, even though that's actually in the long run, that's the wise thing to do, right? That's what, that's what the leaders of Europe understood back in 1815 when they defeated Napoleon. They're like, all right, we're going to have regime change. Napoleon's no longer running France, but, you know, we can't, rip France off too badly. We can't punish the nation of France too badly or else they're going to be spoiling for revenge in a decade or two. Um, and then, of course, that wisdom wasn't there at the end of World War I where they're just like, all right, let's just rip Germany off for everything we can. And, you know, that 
made like if you were trying to make world war ii inevitable in europe you couldn't have done a much better job right and, and, and look i mean let me Versailles. let me go a little uh, one further on you there too which is i was raised to believe that that was the stupid british and the french over incompetent woodrow wilson and edward mandelhouse's you know attempts to moderate their position and this and that we would have never done that and boy do we learn the lesson from that and so this is what justifies the entire American post-World War II global hegemony is that we befriended the Germans and the Japanese after we beat them. We didn't conquer them. We didn't colonize them. We didn't strip them of their, uh, you know, outlying possessions. And we didn't install the Morgenthau plan to deindustrialize Germany forever and all this stuff. The, you know, we, uh, we treated them right so as to avoid exactly what had happened as a result of Versailles. And so this was just absolute conventional wisdom. I learned as an elementary school kid that this is what everybody knows is what's smart to do unlike the stupid thing. And then when the Soviet Union fell apart, what do they do? They treated them just like the French, kicking them while they're down. And, you know, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who was one of the Harvard boys who was sent over there, and who, you know, there's disagreement about exactly what his role was at different places and times. And I want to learn more and eventually interview him about it all when I'm ready. But I've heard him say before that this was deliberate. You know, he's disavowing it and saying he was over there trying to help Russia. Yeah, shock therapy, call it whatever you want. But, you know, we were trying to do the right thing. What had worked in Poland and what was working in Lithuania and this and that, what we were doing, give them a nice loan, but at a low interest rate, not an exploitative one. And but just really enough to help them get on their feet. And we know what that looks like on their feet means this, that and the other thing. And then in Russia, they just didn't do that. And he says he came to understand the Americans were not trying to help the Russians. They were trying to kick them while they were down and take advantage of their victory. And it's like, yeah, but just like you're saying, you think the Russians don't notice that or something that, or that somehow it's not going to matter in a near term future. I think the only place I disagree with you is I don't think it lasted till 2010. I think it lasted till about 2002 or three until Putin just said, look, enough of this. Obviously, you people have no respect whatsoever. I'd bend over backwards to do everything for you. And you still only kick me while I'm down. So he essentially declared independence from the United States and, you know, really started, you know, with that kicked off the Cold War back in the early W. Bush years. Please allow myself to interrupt myself. This is CJ with a special message for all you awesome listeners of the DHP. My work here is primarily funded through the generosity and patronage of awesome individuals like you. If you sign up to support this show via Patreon or Subscribestar, not only do you help me to keep doing this work and do more of it in the future, but you also get various benefits depending on your contribution level. Benefits to include access to the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. In addition to that, again, depending on your level of support, you may also have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else. You may be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Access to bi-monthly or even monthly live streams with me. Access to Dangerous History Lyceum lectures by me, as well as potentially, if you sign up at the Grand Master Scholar Warrior level, membership 
in the monthly DHP online book club. So I hope you'll consider signing up to support my work if you're not already. And if you are, perhaps you'll consider upping your level of support to access more benefits. Links to Patreon and Subscribestar for the DHP will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. If I can rewind to Clinton for just a second, I wanted to say that um, they also did two major wars against the Serbs in uh, Bosnia and in Kosovo in order to, uh, in, in 94, 95, and in 99, uh, eventually to uh, break off Kosovo from Serbia. And in both cases, back to Mujahideen. I mean, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who organized the September 11th attacks, earned his stripes as a bin Ladenite fighter and commander fighting for Bill Clinton in Bosnia. And they did the same thing in Chechnya. This is, you know, I have a couple of sources in my last book, but I got, or in uh, Fool's Aaron too, but I got a bunch more now about American support for the jihadists in Chechnya during the late Clinton years and early W. Bush years in order to stop, you know, it's all pipeline politics in the Caspian Basin. That was another major part of Clinton's policy. This is why they supported the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Anything to stick soda straws in that Caspian uh, oil and gas fields and get that stuff out of there without going through Iran or Russia, where they even convinced themselves they were going to build a pipeline from Turkmenistan across Afghanistan under the mountains of Pakistan and to the port of Karachi, which is just the most harebrained thing in the world. They, I don't even think the Taliban could provide security if they had won the whole war for a pipeline like that. Was, the whole thing was a pipe dream anyway, but that was why the Clinton government supported the rise of the Taliban in the 1990s was so that they, and, and they wanted not a peaceful settlement. They wanted a total victory for the Taliban in order that they could provide security for that pipeline. And I'm not saying that's why America invaded in 01. I'm talking about that's why Bill Clinton supported the rise of the Taliban. I show that, I demonstrate that in uh, Fool's Aaron, but uh, with quotes from the Clinton people talking about it. I, I want to just hop back for, for just a second. It's my, it's my recollection. And I haven't gone back like you're doing now and, you know, dug back through um, all the contemporary documents around like say the, the turn of the century on this stuff. But um, it's my recollection from like living through it that when Putin first came to power in Russia after, you know, the American uh, corrupt drunk sock puppet Yeltsin was gone, that even though he was taking a, a hard line against like the, the corrupt oligarchs and, you know, all that kind of stuff that I remember Putin being pretty like at least trying to be friendly to the u.s and like trying to am, am i misremembering that because i could have sworn at least his first few years in power um he was seemed to be you know trying to extend an olive branch to the west and all that yeah no you're right you're just skipping ahead but okay the one thing is i wanted to mention here is that clinton kicks off the color-coded revolutions here first with the so-called bulldozer revolution in Serbia against Milosevic. And that's going to continue on into the W. Bush here. So I think that's my exhaustive list of all of Clinton's provocations here. Um, but yes, so then, uh, as people may remember, Yeltsin resigns on New Year's Eve 99 and appoints Prime Minister Putin, who has um, just gotten back from being victorious in the Second Chechen War, to be to replace him as president three months before the election to obviously give him the favor. Now, the Americans supported the rise of Putin 
And Matt Taibbi does a great job writing about this, about who he was. He worked for this corrupt mayor in, I think, St. Petersburg. And this guy was going to go to jail. And Putin arranged to get him safely out of the country and all of this stuff. And proved his loyalty to the family of, like, all the Yeltsin cronies. Of what an effective Smithers he was for them. Taking care of all of their things. um, And got this guy, you know, safely out. And and with all his money too, and so the American, so the Yeltsin people, like, oh, we really like this guy. Uh, let's promote him. And the Americans, like, yeah, he seems very capable, and all this. And again, Taibbi just demonstrates over and over again how they weren't just being hopeful about him. They were really, you know, happy that this guy was in power. They were sure that he was going to be a reliable sock puppet replacement for Yeltsin. They were certainly very hopeful of that, you know, and. Now, he tried to join NATO and, uh, oh, I wanted to mention too, when, so when Clinton expands NATO in 99, you know, it took a few years to get all the ink dry and everything. And they finally bring Poland, uh, Hungary, and the Czech Republic into NATO in the spring of 99. Three weeks later, they launched the war against Serbia to break off Kosovo. So listen, you paranoiac. This thing is a defensive alliance only. And I don't know what you're talking about. You claim to be threatened from this. I mean, this is completely irrational. Maybe you should get a hysterectomy or something because this is clearly has nothing to do. By the way, bombs away. Right away. Three weeks after the final uh, induction of those uh, first three uh, countries into NATO there. So, but now Yeltsin, and, and you understand that, the Soviet or the the Russians were at a real position of disadvantage here in terms of their finances, their economy, their everything. They essentially have no power to do anything about this stuff. But then, so W. Bush comes in, and first of all, the Russians did try to warn the United States that you guys know there's an attack coming, right? I don't think they ever get any credit from that. Uh, for that, it it made the news, but no one ever said, "Ah, oh, geez, you know that was." You know, also, by the way, didn't didn't many years later, the Russians also tried to warn us about those Zarnayev guys. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. The the Boston bombers. Yeah. Um, Yeah. If they were just, you know, just instinctively uh, hostile towards the United States just because or whatever. I mean, surely they wouldn't, you know, repeatedly warn us about uh, terrorists coming our way. Hey, man, I got to tell you, remember the story of Zacharias Moussaoui, who wanted to fly a plane, but he didn't want to learn how to take off or land it. Mm-hmm. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the flight school was nervous. They called the FBI. The FBI knew something was up with this guy. They went to D.C. Um, people might remember Colleen Rowley was the FBI lawyer who was involved in the case, and she was Time Person of the Year in 2002 for blowing this whistle and writing a letter to the Senate about this. And she uh, wrote an article for ConsortiumNews.com, and I interviewed her about it. And you read all about it, where the problem was this. They said to the FBI supervisors, hey, listen, we can tie this guy, his brother. Obviously, he's tied to his brother. His brother works for Katab, this bin Ladenite terrorist in Chechnya. But in Washington, D.C., the supervisors said, nah, the jihadists in Chechnya are good guys. We like them. And so uh, this is not good enough to give you a FISA warrant. Now, FISA warrant, you know, the the Bill of Rights says 
that a cop has to have probable cause. I mean, here we even have probable cause, probably, you know, to me, I'm the judge. This guy's, they, they certainly have a reasonable suspicion. And that is the threshold for a FISA warrant. If the suspect is known to be or suspected to be, there's a reason to believe that they are an agent of a foreign state power or a foreign terrorist group. And so the FBI in Minneapolis was like, give us a warrant to crack open this guy's laptop. And the FBI headquarters said, nope, because Chechen jihadists are nice guys, not terrorist enemies. And then after September 11th, uh, George Tennant went, oh, I wonder if this has anything to do with that guy out there in Minneapolis, which he was not really the 20th hijacker. He was apparently in the country for a later mission. But anyway, they cracked open his laptop then and it had information that tied directly back to the hijackers in Florida. So there's just every re- every reason to believe that the September 11th hijacker plot could have been rolled up if they had only, if this is in all in August 01. And when supposedly, you know, the counterterrorism team's uh, hair is on fire, they're so concerned about an impending Al-Qaeda attack here, there, somewhere. And that was why they blew it is because Musawi was only tied to bin Laden by way of Chechnya, where now he's a moderate rebel instead of a terrorist because they're, you know, useful for American and Saudi foreign policy. I hate to say you couldn't make this stuff up, but it's true. And um, anyways, so W. Bush comes in, September 11th happens, and Vladimir Putin's the first one to call that night. And he goes, listen, I'm at your service. What do you need? You need base. You need uh, Russian airspace. You got it. You want bases in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. You got it. And he had to face down. It's credibly reported. He had to face down right wing opposition in the military and in his government and had to pull his whole alpha dog thing that like, no, I'm the boss. And I say this is worth it. We want to make friends with these Americans. They're in a crisis. And hey, it's not like they were switching sides in the Afghan war. We were. So they were saying, fine. You want to go fight the Mujahideen for us here? And you could pretend that they're being cynical like Brzezinski and saying, here, go ahead and bog yourself down and bleed yourself to bankruptcy. I don't see any real reason to believe that, although that was certainly why bin Laden did the attack. So it would make sense that uh, from the Russian point of view that like, hey, 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 if you guys want to go ahead and kick yourselves in the shin, be my guest too. you know, punch yourself in the face more like it. Um, shoot yourself in the heart. But he was being helpful, certainly on the face of it. And then the first thing W. Bush did was tear up the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which was Nixon's great achievement, which said, you know, let's limit how many defensive missiles we try to put up. Because, of course, that just leads to bring some shit, more offensive missiles on each side. And, you know, it was a, a way to call a break in part of the arms race at the time. And uh, Bush tore it up because essentially they just wanted a boondoggle to build these uh, ballistic missile defense systems, which are just a giant ripoff for their cronies. Uh, Has nothing to do with, you know, you can't shoot down a bullet with a bullet. There's only one real way to take down an incoming volley of ICBMs from Russia. And that's with neutron bombs in space, enhanced radiation, thermonuclear bombs that blow up with, they have a thinner shell. So they blow up with more radiation than heat to try to take out all their avionics and blow them up and neutralize the bombs. Nothing else works. Can't hit a bullet with a bullet. Those ballistic missiles come in at Mach 12 or whatever it is. Can't shoot that. Give me a break. 
whole thing is completely ridiculous and they know it. But anyway, um, this is a huge finger in the eye of the Russians. And I'm skipping ahead here, but might as well. Jack Matlock in 2015, he was the second to last ambassador to the Soviet Union. And in 2015, they had this salon thing in New York City. And he said to Putin, listen, man, you know that whole thing is a ripoff. It's, it doesn't work. It's just to transfer tax money from the people to these cronies and all that. You've got to know how it works, the military industrial complex here in America. And Putin says two things about that. First of all, geez, can't you find some other part of your economy to subsidize than this? Medicine, research, development, goods and services to people, I don't know, hoverboards. He didn't say that. And then two, he's like paraphrasing Anakin Skywalker here. I'm in charge of security. What am I supposed to do? You're ringing my country with anti-missile missiles. You know I have to make more and better offensive missiles, don't you? You do know that. And then three years after that, in 2018, he debuted their brand new generation of nuclear weapons. At least claimed, it was funny, the, the Post and the Times like, oh, he claims that this is true, but we don't believe it. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why not to believe it. He claims that it, this is a direct reaction to W. Bush ignoring him and tearing up the anti-ballistic missile treaty. So now here's a new heavy rocket with enough multiple independently re-entry, uh, targetable re-entry vehicles that you could take out all of Texas with what just one rocket uh, or France or a country of that size with just one rocket. Um, he's got, and it can go around the South Pole where we have no conceivable defense at least set up yet. And then he says he's got nuclear torpedoes for taking out any naval base or, or a port of any kind in the world. He's got nuclear-powered cruise missiles with essentially unlimited range to fly around the world 10 times, sneak up behind your defenses and blow you up that way. And then, of course, the hypersonics that he claims go Mach 10, which I don't know, 7, 8, whichever, which means from the mid-Atlantic, they could blow up Washington, D.C. in five minutes instead of, you know, you have 15-minute warning or or 30-minute warning to try to figure out what to do and whether it's real and this and that. Um, now we're reducing warning time down to the uh, nth degree, and which just means that trigger fingers on our side are that much itchier. If, you know, a computer says blip, then people panic because you don't have enough time to figure out if it's really right or not. So use them or lose them and all that stuff. You know, this makes the whole thing that much more dangerous. So, and, and is, is George W. Bush going to be able to shoot down all those incoming missiles? If it comes down to it, no, he's not. Which goes to the other worst thing that he did, which was put anti-ballistic missile stations in Romania and Poland and the radars in the Czech Republic. And he said, this is to shoot down incoming missiles from Iran. Well, Iran doesn't have missiles that can reach Poland. Just look at a map. They just don't, you know, you can... Look up on you know, whatever American military website will tell you the maximum range of Iranian rockets. And they don't have nuclear weapons of any kind anyway. Um, so that was clearly a red herring. Now, W. Bush said, well, the Russians shouldn't be paranoid because look at what we've installed. It's not nearly enough to be able to try to shoot down an incoming volley of nuclear missiles into Europe from Russia, which was true, right? They have thousands of nukes. And so he was sort of kind of plausibly saying in a way that it, it made sense that if Iran or whoever shot off one or two rockets, that then they could launch everything they have at that and try to take it out. Right. But that's 
a total phantom threat. So that's not it. And so it ain't Iran. And it's not to be able to shoot down incoming Russian nukes because that doesn't make sense, as Bush credibly explained. But then so what is it? And then the obvious answer is that their dual-use missile launchers, the Mark 41 missile launchers, can hold Tomahawk cruise missiles, which can be tipped with hydrogen bombs. And under the INF Treaty, they're not. But ah, Donald Trump tore up the INF Treaty. And this was one of Putin's demands of a year ago, was he wanted those missile stations taken down. The Americans said, well, we'll give you inspections. But they should have given them inspections all along. See, there's nothing but anti-ballistic missiles in those tubes, not tomahawks. Let them stop by every month. Why not? Um, but they wouldn't do that until too late. And when Putin is now drawing a line in the sand and saying he wants everything out, he wants to go back to the rules of 1997. He wants everything out of Poland, which, of course, was a hard opening position for his bargaining. But the Americans didn't want to deal with him at all anyway. But I'm skipping ahead. But the point is, there's a massive new nuclear arms race and the Russians are ahead. All because George W. Bush tore up that damn treaty. And then he also brought like 10 more nations into NATO. and including the Baltic states, which, you know, Joe Biden in 1997, Senator Biden said, come on, you're crazy. The Russians are crazy and you're crazy for not thinking that they're crazy to think that bringing Poland into NATO was any kind of threat to them. Who cares? That's nuts. On the other hand, I mean, come on. I mean, if you brought the Baltic states in, I mean, that would obviously be a military threat to Russia. But we're not doing that. Nobody's saying that. But then just a few years later, when W. Bush does exactly that, of course, Joe Biden is gung-ho behind the whole thing um, and wants to push the whole thing. He's guilty for everything all along. He's in the background, him and McCain in the, in the, as the leaders of the Hawks in the Congress are behind every executive decision that we talk about here today, too, by the way. And then, so W. Bush brings in all these countries, and I'm going to get back to offering to bring Ukraine and uh, Georgia into NATO in 08 in a second. But- uh, importantly here is the color-coded revolutions. As I mentioned, Bill Clinton did the uh, regime change in uh, against Milosevic in 2000 in Serbia. But they took that same template and they did it in Georgia with the Rose Revolution of 2003. And then they did the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, where they prevented Yanukovych from taking office. Essentially, they held a very close election, but all of the exit polls, which were all sponsored by American-backed NGOs and so forth, all announced immediately that Yushchenko won and Yanukovych is trying to steal it before any of the ballots can be counted. And then um, they spent millions of dollars supporting protesters with all their orange banners and all their big screen TVs and, you know, all the food and heat and everything they needed to stay outside and protest um, in order to cancel the election. And eventually they did rehold the election. And uh, this time Yushchenko won and Yanukovych was out. So that was the Orange Revolution of 04. Let, let, and- let me just ask you, with these, these color-coded revolutions, like how much of it do you think is, because presumably at least some of it is like genuine, you know, popular. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's just that's beside the point, right? I mean, what they really are is they are coup d'etats dressed up as revolutions. And yes, it's true that like, even if you look at, say, like the template, right, would be Iran 1953. Right. That's exactly no what I'm one can doubt is- that 
there were right wing religious people, there were communists, there were left wing and right wing groups of all of all descriptions who came out in the streets, many of them paid by the CIA to destabilize the country and to protest what they obviously thought was a real grievance. It's just that, look, like, I don't know. Let's say you had a podcaster friend who just did nothing but talk about how bad China was all the time. And then George Soros gave him $50,000. You know that like your friend, he's your friend. You don't believe that your friend is going to let George Soros write his script for him. But you know that George Soros is a China hawk. People say he's a communist. No, he's not. He's Harry Truman. He's Hillary Clinton. It's who he is. He's a center-right, liberal, anti-communist hawk. Is what he's always been and urges regime change in China. And then you would go, well, okay, well, look, your friend is, it means well, but your friend is now a sock puppet of a billionaire who's like clearly using him for his own interests here, right? As part of a thing. Same thing for, look at the poor people of Syria. Like each and every one of them is a precious individual. What can you say? But a bunch of well-meaning people want to go out and overthrow their hereditary dictatorship. And then America and Saudi and Qatar and Israel and Turkey pour billions of dollars and billions of weapons in to support a bunch of head chopping jihadi suicide bombers to try to overthrow Assad because he's friends with Iran and Hezbollah. Well, so what does that make the well-meaning protesters of Syria that makes them extras in America's movie? This isn't about you, Syrians. This is about who controls your country. And that will be decided not by you, but by foreign states. You know, the same thing about the poor Ukrainians here. Oh, you're denying them agency. Yeah, well, who's denying them agency? USAID and NED and Omidyar and Soros and all of the foreign actors who were coming in and supporting their cause for reasons that, of course, have everything to do with what the Americans want to happen. It has nothing to do with the interests of the people in the country, except some of them and only by coincidence. Right. And you could, you could put the same thing the other way. We're like, you know, there are things where, for example, George Soros has backed the Quincy Institute. The Quincy Institute is essentially like heroic. I mean, you read them on a daily basis, basically Jim Loeb's blog and the refugees from the American conservative magazine who got regime changed a little while back themselves and it's like all of our friends. It's everybody I've been interviewing for the last 20 years are the staff of Quincy. And no, they're not like hardcore non-interventionists in all case. They call themselves restrainers. And you'll find like eh, a little bit of a deviation here or there. But like, no, essentially they're doing the right thing. Now, why did George Soros give them money? I don't know. Did Do I think like he probably thinks that we should have like a little bit less worse policy in maybe the Middle East now? Sure. You know, does he want us to back off in Ukraine? I doubt that. And and I'd, I'd be interested to see whether he keeps funding Quincy because they have people who are very non-interventionist on Ukraine there now. And uh, so I don't know. But so, you know, that's the thing is, and, and people got to be aware. I got to say, like, if George, if George Soros ever tried to give money to antiwar.com, we would say no. We can't take that money. Like, even if he agrees with us on whatever it is that he thinks he likes about us, he must not have read us too closely. But if he ever tried it, we would not be able to take it because, of course, that would completely compromise us, you know? So that's just how it is, right? That's what it means to be a nobody in a world of major powers and intelligence agencies 
getting away with, you know, large agendas that are, you know, as they say, above our pay grades, you know? So yeah, were there people who, you know, lost an election and wish they hadn't in 2004? Sure. Why does that mean America should take the side of people who lost the election and had to fake it? Um, you can find a crowd of people who agree about anything of whichever size. And so it's, and it's, and it is important too, right? That they say constantly, all of this is about democracy, 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 and nothing else. And yet they completely ignore American opinion on all of this stuff. They prance around talking about how they're going to take away our meat. They're going to deliberately raise the price of hydrocarbons so high that nobody can afford to get to work anymore because they had some secret meeting or maybe a public meeting in Davos, Switzerland, where they decided on all of these policies for us. And they call that democracy. And if you're against it, you're a fascist. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you, what, they what's dress up everything as, as freedom, but it ain't. You know, it's an empire. Yeah. Yeah, well, like so many things, um, I've been able to trace back this whole thing to Woodrow Wilson. I've I've been, you know, over the course of now a few years doing like a painstakingly detailed podcast series on the life and career of Woodrow Wilson, who I know you also hate and rightfully so. And the one of the things that I did for a couple of the episodes on him was I went back through and read a whole pile of Wilson's academic writings from back when he was a professor. And it's really interesting because he's the only president we've had who was an academic as his entire career before he he ran for office um, in 1910 to be governor of New Jersey and then two years later runs for president. And so we have this window into what what Wilson really believed about things that we don't have with other presidents, right? Because, you know, you can't trust, like when they put out the little campaign, you know, propaganda books or whatever, every four years, like obviously that's, you know, complete BS and you can't trust any of it. But, you know, when Wilson was spending three decades as a tenured professor at, at Princeton and then as president of Princeton, like he hadn't, he wasn't running for office. He had no incentive to, in his academic work, to be dishonest about what he really believed and what he was up to. And I was able to, to trace back um, all the way back in the 1880s when he was pretty new as a professor. He wrote uh, an article called The Study of Administration, where, and I did a whole episode just on this one article by Wilson because I think it's, it was that important. He lays out the system that we have today with the so-called you know deep state and the permanent bureaucracy and all this sort of stuff. And then he, in some of his later work, he elaborated a little bit more. And the, the catchphrase that Wilson used to describe basically what we live in now is he called it modern democracy. And he said, Oh no, no, no. It's very different from ancient, you know, democracy like in Athens or whatever like that. And um, basically, you know, some of the key differences are in modern democracy. It is, it is huge. It's, it's not a small compact like city state or whatever. Um, and there are elite expert administrators. He's basically talking about like technocrats, but that, that term wasn't around yet. And he says, yeah, you want to have elections and you want to encourage as many people to vote as possible, but you also want to have, um, and he was inspired a lot of this by, by like the Prussian state and things like this. He said, you want to have a permanent professional class of expert administrators who actually do most of the running of the government. And so in other words, you, you make 
politics as democratic as possible, but then you like firewall off most of what the government actually is and does in practice from politics, from from the results of elections. And this is why you get something like, for example, Donald Trump getting elected president and basically the establishment just, you know, does whatever the hell they want to do. Uh, regardless of, of what he thinks about it. Yeah. Um, well, so anyway, it's, it's all Woodrow Wilson's fault yet again is, is my point that um, sure. and, and my argument is modern democracy isn't even, you know, in any real sense of the word, as people understand it, isn't democratic at all. Um, and I've, I've summed it up by saying that modern democracy is just oligarchy with some extra steps. Yeah. Well, you know, so his right hand man, Edward Mandel House, was, I think of him as Wilson's Cheney, essentially not his right hand man, really his overlord in the background who worked for J.P. Morgan as an agent, essentially, in American politics. And also um, for the British government to some degree, too, I think. Uh-huh. And, and he, uh, he wrote this book, Philip Drew Administrator, A Story of Tomorrow, which is his fantasy of becoming the dictator of the United States. And the book essentially describes the implementation of the New Deal. It describes, well, starting with uh, central banking, which, of course, was accomplished during Wilson. But, you know... Um, there's, you know, the Social Security and, you know, full government regulation of the economy and uh, and of uh, unions and all of the things. And essentially what we saw in practice during World War One as the wartime economy with uh, government control over business and all of that. And then this was, um, you know, essentially that itself was the model for the New Deal um, 20 years later. And FDR did read Philip Drew and uh, talked a lot about that. But see, there was a time there when Mussolini first came to power where he was very popular among the liberal elites in the United States before, you know, things turned sour and that kind of deal. And so Woodrow Will, I mean, pardon me, Edward Mandel House was jealous and said, oh, yeah, well, I anticipated Mussolini by several years. And in other words, explaining that what we call progressivism in America or, you know, center left liberalism in America, it's fascism as um, Robert Higgs called it. It's a participatory fascism, right? They do still hold regular elections. I think that's another term for the same thing. Modern democracy. We're like, yeah, we let you, you know, have the trappings of regular elections and this kind of thing. But, you know, and, and you can take part like you really could run for office and in certain circumstances win and exercise a certain amount of power within the system and all that. But it's what we call a mixed economy, a quasi free market. And that means central banking and massive regulation on the federal level of just about everything. And of course, this is Wilson's. I mean, this is Morgan's guy that we're talking about here. So just like as you know, should be understood in, you know, the classic fascist regimes of Europe, too, that big business wanted it this way. Big business doesn't like free market capitalism. That's just how they got rich in the first place. It's also how they could lose what they have. And so they want to combine their power with the state in, in order to make themselves permanent, you know, in, um, and to essentially to slow down their turnover rate in power. And so that's the whole game, right? It's, Democratic politics can really be considered, you know, instead of the people voting, it's different major corporations and the different bureaucracies themselves sharing the power and wheeling and dealing among themselves over, you know, which policy takes precedent. And and so then what's funny to me about all that, of course, is that if the liberal Democrats anticipated Mussolini by several years, well, then what the hell does that make the Republicans? 
you know? Yeah. When there are a couple of clicks to the right of that, this ain't freedom. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing, you know, when you really start to dig into like what the system actually is in practice versus all the marketing and rhetoric of, you know, civics class or whatever like that. Um, one of the ideas I've, I've had uh, in my head for, for a book to eventually write is what I would call dark civics. And so it'd basically be like, all right, let's take, you know, seventh grade civics class and how a bill becomes a law and schoolhouse rock and all that crap. And like, let's go to the underbelly, like Machiavelli style, like, all right, what's actually working here, right? How does a bill really become a law? Right. Uh, who, who do these people, who do they really represent? You know, um, these politicians who are, you know, making us all poorer in real time very, very quickly right now. And yet who can never seem to not scrounge up another 20, 30 billion dollars to send off to, you know, Ukraine, which really in practice often means to the military industrial complex. It's like nothing is what people think it is if all they do is like go to civics class when they're in school and then occasionally like put CNN on or whatever. You know, it's completely divorced from reality. There's that classic phrase from, I don't know if Malcolm X originally coined it, uh, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. But I think the opposite of that is if you stand for anything, you'll start to notice that things around here aren't right. You know, like you could have really bad economics or whatever it is, a really kind of dumb point of view. Hell, you could even be a Nazi. But if you believe in anything kind of consistent, then you look at what is purported to be the consensus of what's going on around here and what it all means. And you see immediately things don't fit. Right. And so, you know, if people are smart left, right and center and everyone, it ought to lead them all to libertarianism. It's the only thing that really makes sense. But um, no matter who you are, if you have, you know, especially any kind of principle where you care about people, you see how, you know, they claim to love us, but it really, you know, in practice, not so much, you know, I don't know. And I think the wars are a perfect example of this, right? Like you're brought up from birth to believe essentially all enemies are Hitler. And of course, you know, God says you can't kill people, but FDR says, if I dress you up in green and send you off to fight the Wehrmacht, I mean, clearly there's no moral objection to that. And so everybody knows that, yeah, that's the fight for your country loophole in the 10 commandments. And so, and, and every enemy is Hitler. And we're always, you know, the citizen soldiers of the 1940s on this side. And, um, you know, Clark Kent turning into Superman to go and save the day only out of absolute necessity and all that kind of thing as this whole kind of, you know, we're all inculcated forever with this, you know, or from the time we're very young, I mean, to say, and then, so we're in a position where now, if you don't believe in something about the wars now you got to figure out who you're running with right all your social psychology kicks in do i have to move to the left to be against the war or do i got to move to the right to be against the war or do i have to pal around with this guy who i don't like or could i pal around with that group of people over there who i think appeal to me or what's my uncle bob gonna think how am i gonna face him and tell him that the Islamic extremist threat was actually a bunch of overblown hype, man. And we're moving on to hating the Chinese now. No, I'm just kidding. But um, you know what I mean? Uh, people are, they need an out to, to say, look, I'm breaking from the majority view 
that the military is the greatest American institution and the people in it are the greatest Americans of all. And that whatever it does must be in our defense and for our freedom or else they wouldn't be doing it. And I just, you know, I'm making a break. I don't want to have to believe that anymore. But then, so that does raise important questions though, that like, okay, so now are you just running around with Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky? Because to a lot of people or, or worse, like Michael Moore, the big fat commie hypocrite who urges Ugh. everybody to vote for Hillary Clinton and lives in his gigantic, you know, 50 room mansion and whatever, while he's, you know, urging population reduction for everybody else. I sure wouldn't want to be lumped in the same category with that guy, you know? And so it's like a very, like what a countercultural thing to just say, no, I don't care what the ads say during football. I don't believe in this stuff anymore. And that's why I think it's so important, especially for right-wingers and especially war veterans who feel this way, who have been to war and come home and know better to really speak out because they set such an important example. Like even if they're not directly talking to other people like themselves out there in the audience, it's set such an important example. that If you see, for example, Douglas McGregor on the Tucker Carlson show saying it doesn't have to be this way at all. Believe me. I saw Tucker Carlson say to before this Russia stuff happened, Tucker Carlson said to Douglas McGregor, geez, Douglas McGregor, those Al-Qaeda guys, they're like hardcore uh, Sunni extremists, right? Wahhabi types, you know, after us. McGregor goes, yep. And he goes, but Iran, the Ayatollah, he's a Shiite and naturally endangered by and interested in killing guys like that. Isn't that right? And McGregor goes, that's right, Tucker. Like, you see how that conversation between those two men is more important than all 9,000 times I made the same point, right? Is that it's coming from the great victor of Iraq War One, who's telling the, who's the guy who's known as the most conservative or, or populist right, um, you know, leader of opinion in American media. And they're saying, yeah, what? we don't have to pick a fight with the Ayatollah. Colonel, do we need to pick a fight with the Ayatollah? Hell no, we don't, Tucker. Oh, man, that's worth a billion dollars. Someone put that on YouTube and make it viral. And that's what we need. And he'll tell you the same thing about China, by the way. Come on, China? No, we don't. No, they're not a military competitor of ours. Maybe an economic one, shrug. But do I sound scared? No. Coming from a guy like that, instead of the very nice ladies from Code Pink, who I really respect, I mean that. But just coming from a guy like that makes all the difference. And and there are, look at, you know, bring our troops home and concern veterans for America and all these groups. I mean, as you know, a couple of million Americans went to Iraq and Afghanistan and back over those years of the terror wars. And never mind the rest of the special operations forces traipsing around. That's a lot of guys who have seen a lot of ugly stuff and know now that it was all for no good whatsoever, including the loss of their buddies in horrific circumstances. Yeah, um, all the all the years say they don't spent, buy it no more. All, you know, all the years I spent, um, and I I just uh, quit this past summer. But you know, I taught college history for sixteen years, and we're basically talking from um, two thousand six to you know up through the spring of twenty twenty two, and I mean countless, and and most of that time was at basically a community college. And so countless veterans coming through my classes during those years, you know, on, on GI bill money and whatever. Um, and, you know, 
some of them physically uh, uh, damaged, some not, you know, some you could clearly tell had some psychological issues, some, you know, maybe not as much. I mean, everybody has their own experience. Some guys, you know, go to a quiet part of the war and don't experience too much, but definitely, definitely had more than a few students who I could either just tell or, or for whatever reason, they would, they would often want to talk with me, like in my office hours or whatever, probably because, you know, we'd be talking about historical wars in class and I'd be telling them, you know, the, the, the anti-war, uh, dot com kind of version of them in most cases. And I like 99% of the veterans that came through my classes. And these are, you know, mostly like blue collar working class, uh, guys from small town in rural North Florida. And they were overwhelmingly sympathetic to kind of the the way I would cover uh, wars in my U.S. history classes and whatever. Mm -hmm. Like only once or twice did I have a student who was like, you know, kind of pushing back with the standard Captain America narrative or whatever. Like they were they were totally on my side 99% of the time. And, you know, I lost count of how many of them like specifically thanked me for, you know, not just repeating the same standard history class propaganda that they had gotten up till then, you know, so yeah. for sure. Well, look, I mean, I think it's so important to point out, man, as same thing with Ron Paul in 2008 and 2012 ran us all the way anti-war and as a conservative old country doctor, Republican congressman from Texas, still married to his first wife, and every other word out of his mouth is constitution. And the American military, we don't know exactly how they voted, but we do know how they donated. And we know the active duty and veterans donated to Ron Paul in 08 more than anyone on the Republican side. And in 12, more than, well, I'm sorry, I should say more than all the other Republican candidates combined in 08. And in 12, more than all the other Republican candidates and all the donations to Obama on the other side combined, Ron Paul got more from active duty um, and veterans. And that's because, you know what? I'm sorry, man, because I'm going to make this interview take way too long and try your patience eventually here. But no, it's uh, okay. I don't mind. And I'm sure my listeners won't either. And I think a big part of what's going on with that is. You know, to the average government employee, they go, yeah, 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 I take an oath to the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. But with soldiers, they really put their lives on the line for that thing. And it's an abstraction in a way, right? It's this principle that they're, you know, sworn that this is why they're willing to go and kill people and risk getting killed and maybe like lose limbs and see their buddies die next to them and everything. It's for that Constitution. It's not for the current regime. And it's not just a checkbox on a form like it is to the average bureaucrat. To them, it's everything. So then they see Ron Paul and he goes, yeah, I was in the Air Force. He was a medic in the Air Force. And he goes, uh, and I'm a Republican from Texas. And I don't believe in this stuff at all. And the Constitution really does not envision a world empire. The Constitution presumes perpetual peace except during major exceptions when we absolutely have to fight to defend our lives and liberty and that's why our government always claims that that's what they're doing but it's not true and it's okay you don't have to believe in this anymore man and people are like man for for military people i i don't know about other government employees not so much right but the constitute and because Ron Paul obviously means every word he says, this is not some politician talking. This is Ron Paul. He's a doctor, not a lawyer. 
And when he talks about the Constitution, he means exactly what he says about how important it is and and how important it's supposed to be. And they go, oh, that's exactly right. That's what I think. Here's this guy saying, why are we doing this? Who said it all along? Whose voting record proves he means what he says on all this stuff? And we don't need to do this. And so I think that's what really, you know, drew them to him because they knew that he was right, that this whole thing is messed up. And they needed a guy on the right to say that it's okay for you to disagree. You don't have to change your identity. You just have to change your opinion about this one stupid thing that you're tired of believing in at this point. And it worked. It's like magic words. Of course, Donald Trump comes and goes, going to the Middle East is the worst thing that anyone ever did. (laughs) And they go, and now it's like, choose. Either like Trump or you like George Bush's foreign policy. And the right chose Trump. And like, oh, glory, hallelujah, man. You know, there was a cynicism behind that. And he didn't really get us out of there. We still got troops in uh, in um, Iraq and Syria and we're still attacking Yemen. And he didn't really get, out of, get us out of Afghanistan when he could have a few times. Although he did sign a deal to get us out. And he does get credit for that. But, um, but him saying that, him saying George Bush's legacy sucks was so important. And really, it should, I hope it helps with the narrative, you know, that um, I got for you here today, too, which is this same idiot, you know, like Bill Clinton, this horrible person and horrible president who made all kinds of horrible decisions in the first place. It's about September 11th being the first day in history. No, of course, Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton keeping our troops in Saudi Arabia for the whole decade of the 1990s after Iraq War One was the predecessor to the September 11th attack. The main motivation for bin laden's group to turn their attention to the united states beyond question a same idiot bill clinton had this policy of expansion into eastern europe oh the same idiot who took the september 11th provocation and used it to exploit the american people's fear and goodwill and trust in him to launch his bonus war in iraq war ii this absolute catastrophe well that same guy thought he'd be real smart to bring all these further countries into NATO to put these anti-missile missiles into Romania and Poland and to do these color-coded revolutions. And as I said, we had the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And then they did the Denim Revolution in Belarus, which failed. And by the way, Ron Paul's right-hand man, Dan McAdams, was there at the time and wrote a piece for antiwar.com about, man, you should see this Denim Revolution. It sure ain't much of one. You got more media here, more Western media here writing about it than you got actual protesters and this kind of thing. But they sure tried. And they did Tajikistan in 05 and also in which worked for a little while. Or I'm sorry, Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan, um, which worked for a little while. And then um, the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, which failed. And I'm sure people remember um, under Obama, they tried the Green Revolution in Iran. Again, to your point. There are all kinds of people who want to overthrow these governments because they live under them and hate them. And some of them are peaceful and some of them are dangerous. Some of them are literally sock puppets of foreign powers and some of them are not. But what matters is that we're talking about relatively weak countries who are the playthings of, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, they come within the interests of major powers and the will of the people in the street ends up being much less important for what it represents in terms of the opinions of the people 
and uh, much more important in the sense of how well a foreign operation is working and getting their way in changing a government or destabilizing it or influencing it, et cetera, like that. So um, I think I'm done with W. Bush. What I'm missing about W. Bush. Oh, no, no. So then, and geez, WikiLeaks has been having major problems, their website. I hope that someone can put up a legitimate mirror that has everything stored soon. And I don't know what's going to happen with that, but surely you can find the text of this anyway, uh, somewhere. It's Nyet means Nyet. And it's a memo by our current CIA director, William Burns, who was then the ambassador to Russia. And he wrote the memo in early February, 2008. And he says, listen, I've met with Sergei Lavrov and they have drawn essentially this, I'm paraphrasing here, but the starkest of red lines on NATO expansion to Ukraine and Georgia. Don't do it. And Lavrov even says in their paraphrase this thing, you could cause a civil war in Ukraine and then we would have to take sides in that civil war, which is something that we don't want to have to do. So please just don't push it this far. And, uh, and Burns goes on to say, everybody in the Kremlin agrees. Everybody in the national security establishment in Russia agrees. This is not Putin. This is not hardliners to his right. This is everyone says that this is just absolutely over the line. And so beware. And people should read that. It's very instructive. Well, just, what, two months later, three months later, in April, they went to uh, Budapest. And, or is it Bucharest? I always forget which one is the Budapest Memorandum and which one is the Bucharest Declaration and vice versa. Forgive me. I think it's Bucharest. Um, where they announced that, no, we're not bringing Ukraine and Georgia into NATO, but we are going to. And they're on the fast track to join and they're on the program to do it. Now, um, you're familiar with Fiona Hill. She's this ubiquitous figure. It's very interesting. So she's in the W. Bush government, but she also was part of the Ukraine gate impeachment and all of that against uh, Trump. And she uh, famously was part of Russiagate. She was the one who connected steel to Danchenko, who made up all the fabulations for the steel dossier for the Russiagate scam, uh, which is just incredible. Um, but so, and then she's also the lady who wrote in foreign affairs about six weeks, six or eight weeks ago that yes, it's an absolute verified double confirmed fact that America through Boris Johnson ruined the negotiations to end the war last April, same lady. Okay. So Fiona Hill has, uh, at least two or three times talked about how she warned W Bush not to do it. She verified also that the CIA, she was on the national security council under W Bush. Now she warned also that CIA had a, uh, an assessment, a high confidence assessment that this is going to provoke the Russians and be a terrible mistake. And, and it's not worth doing and you shouldn't do it. Fiona Hill says she agreed with that. And further, she told the New York times, I just hate W. Bush so much. I just know. I just believe every word of this. Sorry, I just do. Okay. She told W. Bush and Cheney, listen, man, if you do this, you're going to piss the Russians off. It's going to be bad and cause these consequences. Well, okay. I'm not sure if I believe this part, but this isn't the part that matters. She says, Cheney says, oh, you don't believe in democracy? And he storms out. Like, I don't know what the hell that is. Whatever. So Cheney leaves. Then W. Bush tells her, oh, he's just jerking your chain. Go ahead, ma'am, with your presentation. 
So she tells W. Bush, don't do it, Mr. President. It's going to be bad. It's going to cause all these consequences. And, and also, that's why the Germans and the French don't want you to do it. And then he changes the subject from Russia's objections to, oh, the Germans and the French. Don't you worry about them. I can handle them. I like a good diplomatic challenge. So now, so in other words, discussion over. Now he's talking about the damned French instead of about the Russians. When the whole point of the French is not whether you can win them over or not. The point is, what is the substance of their objection? And that is, in agreement with Angela Merkel of Germany, that this is a needless provocation against the Russians. There was no other objection. That was the objection of our best friends. That we're just picking a fight unnecessarily here and we should not do this. And so it's the entire national security establishment warning them that this is going to be a problem. And they just go ahead in their arrogance and, and do it anyway. And, and now they wanted to announce that they were bringing them into NATO there. But because they couldn't get the Germans and the French to agree, they settled for this kind of half-assed announcement that, well, we are going to bring them in soon. And then look what happened. Four months later, the uh, sock puppet president of Georgia, Mikhail Shakashvili, who was put in in the coup d'etat of 2003, the Rose Revolution of 03, he launched a war against the breakaway provinces of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And especially Ossetia. Now, there had been a previous deal with the European Union where that agreed that Russian peacekeepers would be there and that Ossetia would keep Georgian sovereignty, but with essentially total autonomy as a breakaway province and under the protection of these Russian peacekeepers so that the Georgians can't try to uh, reabsorb it by force. Well, Part of joining NATO was you have to have firm and established borders. And so he wanted to firmly establish his borders. So we attacked Georgia. And people say there were these Russian provocations, but they never specify. And, you know, in writing the book, when I get to that chapter, I'm going to definitely dig as deep as I can and find what supposed provocations. But I've only ever seen claims in the most general sense that the Russians have somehow provoked them into doing it. In fact, I had interviewed the other Scott Horton, who um, is, uh, you know, very anti-Russia hawk at that time. And we really disagreed about this. And I said, look, Georgia started the war. Of course they did. Eventually, even the New York Times admitted that in November. It started in early August. Um, but we knew from the moment it started, the reports started coming in from the European press that Georgia has attacked South Ossetia. It was not the other way around, you know. Um, Anyways, uh, he was adamant that, no, the Russians had provoked it. And then I said, well, how? He's, I don't think he had any specifics, just, you know, they had. Okay, well, whatever, dude, that's a narrative. Um, and I respect that guy, but he's really bad on Russia. But he was heroic on torture in the Cheney years, so I'll give him that for sure. Anyways, when they attacked, they killed Russian peacekeepers. And then so the Russian military came under what's called the Roki Tunnel under the Caucasus Mountains. And drove the Georgians back out again. And I got it in the notes um, from a few different places, including there was some participants talked about this on the record, that Dick Cheney said we should bomb the tunnel and collapse the tunnel and kill the Russian soldiers in there, you know, fire missiles into the tunnel. And W. Bush said, yeah, right. And they didn't do it. 
that was essentially America had a border dispute by proxy in the Southern Caucasus mountains between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. If people want to get out there, you know, dust off their globe and spin it around 180 degrees to see where we're talking about here. Uh, and um, so that really could have led to war. And very importantly, at the time, the narrative in America, again, until November, when the New York Times finally went, <clears throat> OK, you got us. The dominant narrative in America, and this is through the election season, the final lap of the election season of 2008, was that Russia started this war. John McCain said it a million times. Obama didn't dare argue with him about it. And that was the narrative. They were willing to sit there and just pretend that Russia had launched an aggressive war against Georgia for no reason at all, which is just the starkest of lies. It was just like, and I, I should have mentioned, when Bill Clinton launched the war against Kosovo, he said that 100,000 Albanian Kosovar civilians had been killed. Kosovar Albanian civilians had been killed. That's just a damn lie. It just wasn't true at all. It was like two or 3,000. And they're fighting age males in battle. There was no genocide. It was just a lie. That's the same thing here. They'll just look you right in the face and tell you anything. They don't care. As long as they get away with it today, what are you going to do about it tomorrow? You know? Um, and so, um, anyway, it's huge provocation against... Uh, the Russians and and Putin loudly complained about it the whole time, of course. Then Obama comes in and he continues to expand NATO and continues to put the anti-missile missiles in Romania and Poland. You might remember the hot mic moment was, hey, uh, Medvedev, who was serving as uh, the president for a short time there. Listen, tell Putin after I get reelected, I'll have more flexibility on getting those missiles out of Romania and Poland. He never did. Um, and, you know, people acted like, oh, he committed treason and bent over for the Russians there or whatever. He was only claiming that he was going to be reasonable. I guess he was overruled uh, by somebody there. or Maybe he was just lying at the time. They also made a total chump out of Medvedev by getting him to abstain in the U.N. Security Council when they voted to launch their aggressive war against Libya in 2011, uh, based on the absolute, again, total lie that Gaddafi was about to murder all 700,000 uh, civilians of the city of Benghazi, a city the size of Charlotte. Just imagine it. Barack Obama lied in his declaration of war uh, that he just announced by himself without even consulting Congress whatsoever. Um, and then, of course, they used that U.N. Security Council resolution that said they were going to launch a no-fly zone to protect the civilians of Benghazi and said, oh, well, come on, it says protect. And the people of Libya will never be safe as long as Gaddafi's in charge. So we just wrote ourselves a writ for a nine-month regime change war on the side of a bunch of Libyan veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II. It's all in the book. But anyway, they made a total chump out of Medvedev for supporting that. And there were reports at the time that this is what convinced Putin to go ahead and push Medvedev back out and uh, take the presidency back after only one term when before he was planning on letting it go for two and maybe even further after that, you know, to encourage a state that would live beyond him in his image kind of thing uh, while he was still there to control it from kind of behind the scenes, apparently. Um, I hate to quote Kissinger approvingly here, but Kissinger's like, look, man, this is not exactly what a dictator does. Like, you got to admit he's a strong man, but, you know, he did step aside and become prime minister for a while. <laughs> like, nobody was going to arrest him if he didn't. <laughs> what are you going to say, you know? I don't know. He's a, he's a strong man. But he's not exactly a dictator. But anyway, um, so, uh, and then came, of course, uh, most famously, the coup of 2014. 
And people try to deny it, but it's just beyond denial. Just forget it. They poured millions and millions of dollars into the groups that supported the revolution in the streets. Again, a coup d'etat dressed up as a revolution. And they overthrew the same guy they had denied the election to in 2004. He had won in 10. And uh, here they forced him out early. And, you know, I mean, you can go to antiwar.com or a lot of places. Go to consortiumnews.com. Read Robert Perry has a lot of great coverage of the coup of 2014 and explaining how it all went on there. Again, I'm working on the book now. I explained it in that piece I I mentioned, the history behind the Russia-Ukraine war. I talk about it. Uh, But, you know, essentially it was American-backed groups. And in the leaked phone call of Victoria Nuland, you can see that the three major leaders of the three major factions of the groups staging the revolution in the Maidan, the square there, were all being run by the Americans, by, in fact, Robert Kagan's wife, Victoria Nuland, Robert Kagan, the extremely important neoconservative theoretician and one of the men most responsible for lying us into Iraq War II, uh, right up there with his partner, Bill Crystal and uh, their counterparts in government like uh, Libby, Wolfowitz and Pearl and, and their contemporaries there. Um, but anyway, so she's caught red handed saying F the EU. That's the famous F the EU phone call. And but what's the problem? They're taking too long engineering the coup. She wants it her way and she wants it now. So she's working with the UN. They got this guy, Robert Sari coming in. They're working with Joe Biden. We're going to get him on the phone. The vice president just got off the teletype thingy with Sullivan. Uh, that's our current, uh, Joe Biden's current national security advisor. He was then vice president Biden's national security advisor, handed off to him after Hillary retired in 2013. Um, he had been Hillary's right-hand man before that. Just got off the phone with Sullivan and, um, he says that Biden's willing and we're going to put him on the phone tomorrow to give an attaboy and get the deets to stick and get all the participants on the same page here. And we want uh, Yatsin Yuk to be the new prime minister and all of this. Now, deniers say that they were talking about a deal that Yanukovych had offered them for Yats and his buddies to join the government, but they had rejected that deal out of hand immediately at the time. So uh, it's not entirely clear. They do say it, it, it. When, uh, you know, you can infer exactly what they mean by it your own way in different circumstances here. But it doesn't seem like there was much negotiation on the American side that the Americans supported putting these guys into the government while Yanukovych was still in power. I think the excuse makers there are wrong. Um, But regardless, uh, they worked a deal where they promised for new elections in December And the government would pull all their police back, but the protesters would pull all their guys back. And the so-called big three, the leaders of the uh, Maidan movement out there, including Oleg Tannebach from the Social Nationalist Party, Svoboda, who, you know, if you just put Tannebach in Google Images, there he is with his Hitler salute and SS lightning bolts behind him. And, oh, and you'll also see pictures of him palling around with John McCain and Victoria Nuland and Chris Murphy. And uh, anyway, they got up there and announced the deal. And the leader of right sector, Dmitry Yarosh, another Nazi group, grabbed the microphone and said, no, we don't support that. Come on, everybody, let's get them. Well, the police had pulled back. So the Nazis just seized all the government buildings. I mean, and we were watching this the night of. I mean, we saw they they seized the city hall. And the first thing they did was put up Confederate flags and SS lightning bolts and swastikas 
and uh, the what's called a Wolf's Angle, which is like an, a capital N with a line through the center of it, which dates back to the uh, Galatian SS in the Holocaust in World War II, the Nazi auxiliaries uh, in Ukraine uh, during that time. And it was, you know, what you'd call a street putsch, right? It, was, it wasn't a coup d'etat by the military against him. And, and there was a major provocation in the form of snipers shooting the protesters and police. And, you know, of course, the official story it was is that the cops, after months of this, just decided to open fire on these protesters and kill, you know, random innocent protesters and this kind of thing. But that is highly disputed by real experts, too, doing their forensic studies of who was occupying which buildings and could have fired from which angles and all of these different things. But we also have um, a leaked, again, probably by the Russians, but not denied, intercepted and leaked um, conversation with, uh, I want to say it's Carla Del Ponte, but then I think that maybe that's not right. Please forgive me. It's a it's a woman who's very important in the European Union and had been like with the Hague prosecutions of Milosevic and all this stuff. I think. Uh, forgive me for for flubbing on the name here, but anyway, she's intercepted on a phone call saying to an American official, or I'm sorry, to a Dutch official or something, or an English official. They're like, ah, oh, you know what I heard though. It turns out, or not I heard, but she has on good authority. It turns out it was our side that was doing the sniping. Our guys was, and then he's like, oh, really? Oh my God. She's like, yeah, looks pretty bad. This and that. So, and there, there's other information too. So certainly it's in dispute, but you know, one narrative, which I think I'm leaning toward, um, although I'm not through with, you know, my full research on this part of the book yet is that this was a provocation. Oh, and this is the other thing. There's a documentary where they interview snipers who say, yeah, I was hired by right sector to come and do the shooting, you know, which I think was credible at the time. Um, but I, I do need to look into that more, but people can find that. Um, and it does make sense that the point was to drive the crowd into a frenzy and to force Yanukovych to say, you know, to get him impeached um, and to force him uh, you know, forces back to the wall that like, oh, look, see, this thing has been escalated now out of control and it's all your fault. And we demand absolutely that you give in now and sign this damn deal. And so got him to do so. And then that was it. They just chased him right out of town and and took over all the government buildings. Um, now, almost immediately afterwards, and, you know, you talk about you know, when history began on this story, a lot of times it is this last February, but failing that, it's when Russia seized Crimea. A friend of mine was telling me he was interviewed recently and they go, okay, we're going to debate this. All right. So in March, Russia seized Crimea. And it's like, no, you don't get to do that. Um, that's like starting the, you know, dropping the needle right in the middle of the record. Um, that's what um, Robert Higgs calls truncating the antecedents. That's what he uh, talked about uh, Roosevelt's provocations before Pearl Harbor. At like, oh, no, you don't get to talk about sending all these warplanes to China and embargoes on oil and steel and all of these things, you know, um, which uh, helped lead to Pearl Harbor and quite deliberately so at the time. Uh, they want to truncate the antecedents. Never mind the coup of February. All you need to know is that Russia stole Crimea in March. But again, Crimea was only given to Ukraine 
by an edict of the Secretary General of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, Khrushchev, uh, Nikita Khrushchev in 1954. What's holy writ about that? And, you know, he did it for his own selfish political reasons, too. Now, you know, uh, Crimea originally had been taken and, you know, bought at gunpoint, I think, by Catherine the Great uh, from the Ottoman Empire in 1783, the same year that John Jay and Ben Franklin and John Adams went to Paris to sign the treaty to end the Revolutionary War four years before the Constitution was written. Um was when the Russians took control of it. And yes, I'm sure cleansed it of Tatars and and moved all the, you know, Russians in and so forth. But we're talking literally, you know, now 250 years ago almost, uh, 240 something. And um so uh yeah, 240. Um so what 239. Hey, good for me after you know three tries. Anyway, um so uh they did take it, but there was a major provocation, which was, first of all, the coup. But then three former Ukrainian presidents wrote a letter um, urging now is the time to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base that they had held on lease since the end of the Cold War. Now, under the Soviet Union, they just owned it, right? But um, once Ukraine got independence, they had made this deal that. Ukraine gets to keep Crimea, but the Russians get to keep the naval base. But they'll pay a lease on it. And that deal had held for 24 years. It wasn't until Barack Obama's government did that coup uh, that led to the critical point, where then what happened was what the French call a coup de main, which is where it's one big battle and one side wins. In this case, it wasn't even a battle. In this case, it was really just Marines and sailors went outside and stood on street corners and said, this belongs to Russia now. And whatever, you know, minimal Ukrainian forces there fled, and that was it. And, you know, Wikipedia says six people died, but I don't think it's clear that Russian forces killed any of them, maybe one or two or something. But it was essentially, you know, some low-level fighting between some partisans somewhere where less than 10 people were killed. And it was, you know, essentially a bloodless takeover of the thing. Then they held a plebiscite, which, you know, yeah, under military occupation, but then again, polling firms from Germany came in and and I believe other places too and verified that the numbers were essentially in the super duper majorities north of 80% of uh, the population of the peninsula voted to join Russia and Putin accepted them and um, you know yes that's against the UN charter which is a treaty that Russia is a party to then again overthrowing the government of Ukraine is also a violation of the UN charter. And that's what America did when, which led right to the thing. Um, and so, and, and, you know, on their precedent, they can invade, do whatever they want to whoever they want. They want to break South Sudan away from North Sudan. They'll do that. They want to invade Iraq based on a pile of lies. They'll do that. They want to break Kosovo off from Serbia and draw a new international border and recognize independence again, based on total lies. They can do that too. They don't care. And then, so um, the Russians said, all right, well, you know, we can break the law too then fine. And did that. Um, but you, it is true that they have a, a massive historical claim to that uh, peninsula and that the Americans, a lot of times would recognize that out loud. They're like, eh, you know, there are worse things than, them keeping Crimea pretty much as theirs anyway, and this kind of thing at the time. 
Yeah, and weren't there like major uh, uh, battles and campaigns way back in the Crimean War in the mid 19th century that, um, you know, are, are sort of like Russian patriotic myths, basically? I mean, well, and, and worse than that, even was, you know, in World War II, something like 300,000 Russians and Ukrainian Soviets, anyway. I'm not sure exactly the nationality of everybody, but something like 300,000 Soviets died fighting the. German and Romanian Nazis to keep Crimea out of their hands. So uh, that's a very important point because, you know, people talk about resource wars or religious wars or whatever, but pride has a lot to do with a lot of things too. And I know as a Texan how important the Alamo still is. If some foreign force tried to take San Antonio, the Texans would die if they had to killing those people until they were gone. Simple as that. I know the New Yorkers feel the same way about West Point, right? Benedict Arnold tried to give away West Point. Nobody's ever given away West Point, ever. And so, but now imagine that 300,000 men had died defending West Point or defending the Alamo. And you might as well have Jesus born there, right? So, yeah. All you have to do is just use your imagination and go, oh, that's how the Russians feel about the Crimean Peninsula. Uh-huh. Yeah, something like that. On on top of, you know, the the fact that it's their only warm water naval base. So so you you add in like, you know, patriotic uh mythology and 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 battles and sacrifices and all this sort of stuff on yep. top of a strategic rationale for it right. as well. And it's like Which yeah, is course. why America's doing this to them, right? Is because as, as Zbigniew Brzezinski said, with Ukraine, with Crimea, and that warm water port, Russia is a world power. Without it, they're not. They're just a regional power. It's everything. It's a major, you know, on the grand chessboard, it's a major piece, whether it belongs to us or them. And they won't talk about this now, but go back and look at the record from just a few years ago. I got... I'm collecting footnotes like Hot Wheels cars over here like crazy, man. And it's just, you got the New York Times going, oh, yeah, the American and Russian existential fight over who's going to dominate Ukraine. And they just put it completely in that way. Why deny it? That's what's going on here. It's not about a bunch of people out in the street other than their props in, uh, you know, a stage play that's been written where they do their part to accomplish American ends. And that's tough, but that's what it is. And I should mention here, too, um, people should really look up. I, I mentioned the Victoria Newland clip, the FDEU thing. I think people can listen to that. But also, I do highly suggest that people look at this clip of Gideon Rose, who is the editor of Foreign Affairs, the Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations. And he went on, I don't know exactly why, went on the Colbert show. They thought this was smart PR. He went on the old Colbert show in February of, it would have been February 24th, 2014. So it's two days after the success of the coup. And so he really is going on to spike the football. And then what they talk about is that America's stealing Ukraine away from Russia. As he puts it, Ukraine is Russia's girlfriend. And we want her to come with us, the nice yuppie from the nice neighborhood, and leave behind her bad boyfriend from the bad neighborhood. That's what he says. And later he says that um, Ukraine is Robin to Russia's Batman. And without them, we 
if we break up the dynamic duo, we really hurt Russia. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, and, 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 oh, cause we love the people of Ukraine so much, you know? And, um, and so Colbert says, well, how come you're not just spiking the football, which is really what he was doing. Right? I guess he says, why isn't Obama spiking the football and saying in your face, biatch, we just stole this country from you. And he says, well, that's because we have him good and distracted by the Sochi Olympics right now. And we want him to say, oh, and then Colbert paraphrases. Oh, look at the, your nice medal count. Just don't look over here while we're stealing a country from you. And Gideon Rose says, basically, yeah, that's what's going on. And, you know, he and um, in the Newland phone call, she's talking with Jeffrey Pyatt. And he and Gideon Rose, they are mixing up who said what, but they use this terminology. We have to hurry up and glue this thing. We have to stick it. We have to midwife it. We have to make it sail before Putin can torpedo it and shoot it down. This kind of language. They both talk that way. And I think most of those are Jeffrey Pyatt talking, but Gideon Rose says one or two of those things as well. Uh, And then, of course, what happened was that Putin did react. They thought they were going to kick him out of his naval base. And, you know, he later joked, you know, you can call him like a sociopath but he ain't like humorless entirely i don't know he says you know we thought about how much you know how nice it would be to go to sevastopol to visit our nato partners for the holidays and then we thought as nice as that would be nah we'll go ahead and keep the naval base for ourselves and you guys can come and visit us right i don't want to fight you guys but i'm keeping my goddamn base he said Sort of like, uh, you know, what, uh, I don't know, the people of Southern California would say if somebody tried to take San Diego away from them, you know, I think they might fight. So anyway, they or or they might just walk outside and stand there with rifles and say, no, you don't. Right. Um, and then make a joke about uh, holiday visitations. So anyway, but then what happened was war broke out in the east And that was because there are partisan factions in the east of the country who said, listen, if you guys can occupy buildings and overthrow a democratically elected government that we voted for, well, then we can occupy government buildings and refuse to accept the rule of your new coup d'etat junta. So screw you. And then immediately the new president, Poroshenko, launched a war on terrorism and attacked them. They didn't even really try to negotiate in good faith at all. And, you know, then in the state of war, They held plebiscites, you know, as legitimate as you could presume they were. I don't think it matters that much. I think public opinion, uh, there's reason to believe that public opinion was with the results anyway, was that they wanted to to declare independence from Ukraine and join the Russian Federation. And then Putin told them no. Putin was negotiating a peace deal with um, Angela Merkel. And so this became known as Minsk One. And the idea was that, no, we're going to leave the Donbass. That's Donetsk and Luhansk in far eastern Ukraine. Those are states, essentially provinces, oblasts, they call them. And um, we're going to leave them in Ukraine. But we have this deal. And Minsk One said, essentially, an end of the heavy fighting, pull back the heaviest equipment and end the airstrikes and all this kind of thing. And then, you know, that did somewhat lessen the fighting. And then they had Minsk Two in February of 2015 which was supposed to really end the fighting and create this autonomous zone for the Donbass and, you know, reconstruction, whatever, and essentially like strong federalism, give them statehood, uh, leave them in Ukraine 
and answerable to the central government in some ways, but, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, under their quote unquote protection, but outside of a threat from them, you know, so to speak. And, but they never implemented this deal, even though it was Angela Merkel and uh, Francois Holland, I believe, were the ones who negotiated at the time. You know, Merkel came to America and told Obama, listen, I'm ending this war. And then turned around and did it. She was polite enough to come all the way to, to America to notify him and said, I'm going to make a deal here. And he said, okay, go ahead, lady, whatever you got to do. So she went and did this deal. And then the UN and the United States of America rubber stamped it and said, yes, we endorse this. And this is the law of the land now. And then they never put any pressure on Kiev to implement it whatsoever. Right. And uh, so Trump comes in and he's falsely accused of treason with Russia because he said, I want to get along with Russia. And, you know, something to the effect of "Eh, the Ukraine thing. I don't know what's going on over there. We'll see. Right. Rather than I'm committed to the party line on this. And Hillary lost and well, she was trying to cheat. And so she, you know, arranged this, you know, hoax against him in the first place. The Democrats did with the help of the FBI counterintelligence division in the first place, as we know from the Papadopoulos scam was a predicate for the whole damn thing. Um, And then all the way through, they just the, the Democrats and their lawyers and their agents and including Fiona Hill on all of this and. Then the FBI counterintelligence division in the CIA too. And then eventually the entire department of justice, the special prosecutor's office and all of the media perpetrated this massive hoax. It's just unbelievable. The hoax of Russia gate against Donald Trump. And yet this two dimensional character in this scene, of course, reacted exactly how they wanted him to react. In fact, the FBI told CNN at one point, now, look, if we can't overthrow him under the 25th Amendment, claiming he's unfit to serve in office because he's a Russian agent, if we can't get his own cabinet to overthrow him under the 25th Amendment, like he's been incapacitated by a stroke or something, which is what that's for, then, uh, you know, we can at least rein him in. And so that's what we got to do. Just prevent him from having a policy with Russia that makes any sense at all. Now, Trump, by the way, he's no Ron Paulian. His idea was we ought to be working with Russia against China, 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 China. Well, guess who agrees with him on that? Henry Kissinger, who, you know, all good humanitarians hate, but who all establishmentarians respect as the grayest of graybeards, the wisest of them all, the oracle of knowledge who want to tell them what to do all the time and who usually agrees with all of their worst instincts, you know. But Trump correctly said, Oh, yeah. Which, of course, he was too stupid to bring this up himself. But somebody else brought it up and he goes, oh, yeah, that's true. I said to Henry Kissinger, I said, don't you think we should get along with Russia so that we could pick a fight with China? And he told me, Donald Trump, you're the smartest man who ever lived. You're so tall and wealthy and successful and right about that. He said, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to be funny. Paraphrase Trump. And so which I believe is true, right? Kissinger's the guy who broke China off of the Soviet Union because they were the weaker one. We were trying to, you know, tilt the balance against the stronger one, um, you know, back in uh, the early 1970s. And so now China's the stronger one and Russia's the weaker one. And so we want to use our real uh, real politic balance of power, you know, um, major nation states interests. Uh, Mearsheimerian doctrines to say that, no, now we should be getting along with Russia. 
in order to tilt against China. But see, there was already a massive interest in the military and the national security state and so forth in this Cold War and in their, you know, major strategic doctrines of preventing any long-term friendship or alliance between Germany and Russia and all these things. And then on top of that, you had this entire hysteria over Russiagate. So how are you supposed to implement a soft on Russia policy during all of that? You just can't, right? And then so as this two-dimensional character, what did Trump do? As his son put it, Oh, yeah. Well, we're pouring a bunch of weapons into Ukraine now. Now let's see them call us pro-Russian traitors. If we're Manchurian candidates, how come we're arming Ukraine? Yeah, well, that's why they called you that, dude, is to rein you in and reined in you are. And so where Obama had overthrown the government there, but was afraid to arm it because he was afraid, everybody say it with me now, of unnecessarily provoking the Russians. And especially because of some of the radical right wing auxiliary forces um, and militias fighting with the Ukrainian military there who, you know, are just the white version of the Mujahideen, you know, obvious coming soon blowback terrorists against the West. Um, He was just afraid to commit. Well, Trump comes in, Mr. Let's get along with Russia, uh, and he pours in all the weapons. Now, um, on top of that, uh, very quickly, he also let the military just had no control of them. Um, it was their policy. I don't think his, but it was, or it was his policy and it was terrible, but I think more likely they just did what they wanted. And this is major naval exercises in the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea and major air exercises. Well, first of all, major, you know, um, uh, you know, nuclear war exercises with our European, uh, you know, NATO partners. Um, not just tabletop, but, you know, in real life uh, exercises. And then uh, also like constant pressure in the Black and Baltic and Oshtok Seas. That's in the far east there near Vladivostok, where, and I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, but I'm a Texan, leave me alone. And the point was, though, they're sending their nuclear bombers to force the Russians to turn on their radars. In, In other words, simulating nuclear first strike. And and doing it constantly, harassing them. And major uh, naval exercises in the Black and Baltic Seas, where, of course, they have, you know, the, I mentioned those Mark 41 missile launchers that are the dual-use launchers for anti-ballistic missiles, but you can also uh, put tomahawks in them. Well, those are called Aegeus Onshore. That's, in other words, these are naval missile launchers that we use. Um, our loophole in the INF Treaty before Trump tore it up that who needs mid-range missiles in Germany or Poland when we can just station them in the Baltic Sea. And so, um, you know, just, you know, 10, 15-minute flight time, 20-minute, whatever flight time from Moscow. And so this is all just absolute major provocation um, all throughout the Trump years. Then Biden comes in and he holds, you know, first of all, he vastly increases the naval presence in the Black Sea all year long of 2021. Uh, and including what they call Operation Sea Breeze in June, which is where you might remember the British and the uh, Russians came to almost blows. And I think it was the Russians fired warning shots at the British. And they were like in the Sea of Azov, way out, you know, in the very northeast of or, or near it, near Crimea. It might have been west of Crimea, actually, now that I think about it. It's still in the very far north of the Black Sea there. Um a major provocation there. And then in September and October and November, 
and I'm sorry, I forget the jargon of the different things, but there was official White House statements and then official uh, State Department uh, doctrines and Defense Department doctrines about our partnership with the Ukrainian government, our repeated vow to bring them into NATO, our uh, vow to uh, integrate their military with ours, what they call interoperability, to make sure that their military essentially is the de facto auxiliary of NATO and is can be integrated with American command and control, just like the rest of NATO forces in Europe and all of this stuff. So that was when the buildup began, was, you know, in at the end of October and, and in November. And then the American position all through the end of last year and the very beginning of this year was go to hell. Your demands are all unreasonable. You obviously only propose them just to be rejected. Get this. They're bringing up 1997. I mean, what even are you talking about? We're not even going to look it up. Screw you. They said, you know what it is? We have an open door that says that if any country wants to join NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, any country wants to join, no one can tell them yes or no other than the previous members of NATO. And we'll be damned if we're going to let any other power of the earth say that their friend or neighbor is not allowed to join. Our door is open. You hear me? Open door. Open door. But of course, this is all just a pretend thing. There's no door. It's just a bit of jargon that they came up with to use. The entire thing is just a concept that can be canceled at any time. Any wise person could say, actually, you know what? And this was proposed over and over again, including by Henry Kissinger back after the coup and the war broke out in 2014. Um, Kissinger said, we should treat Ukraine like Finland during the Cold War or like Austria during the Cold War, neutral, not part of the Eastern Bloc, not part of the West. Leave them alone and leave them out of it. It's too much to try to bring them in. And I'm sorry, I did not mean to give a short shrift to the fact that the war continued from the whole the time from 2014 all the way through. So what they call low level fighting, which means, you know, artillery going off, you know, back and forth and people being killed by the low level thousands, but all along. So, you know, something like 10,000 died in the first year and then another 4,000 were killed in the eight years after the seven years after that, if that makes sense from the so-called lower level fighting, but this is still going on. So, My point in all of this, and if anybody is even still with us at this point, CJ, is not to say that the Russians were right to do what they did. And if you listen to uh, Vladimir Putin's declarations of war from from, uh, February 22nd and 24th, I am not saying that his arguments there are a reasonable case for launching a war. I'm not saying that. I don't believe that. If I did believe that, I'd say that because I don't give a damn what people think. I'll say whatever I think is right here. I'm not for this. It's not exactly 100% an aggressive war on Russia's part. The war really did start in 2014. However, it was a major escalation by some thousands of percent, right? However you measure that, just in terms of overall violence. We're talking ultraviolence. We're talking about absolutely, you know, out of your mind, worse than any horror movie you've ever seen, what's happening to these people over there. And was that justified by the situation going on in the Donbass? It just absolutely was not. And people need to stop being so binary in their thinking here. 
you know, and there were alternatives. For example, they could have completely cut off the Europeans from their natural gas one year ago. We're recording this after Thanksgiving, the end of November, 2022. They could have said, you know what, give in to our demands, damn it. And then pull the valve and raise the cost of gas for the people of Europe through the roof overnight when it was cold out and said, really, we're playing hardball. They could have also announced that one of these is my ideas. I forget which one. Maybe it was this one was they could announce that we're not cooperating with anything in the UN Security Council ever again until you guys give in on this. And then, oh, I know this was Aaron Mate's proposal was they could have said, bring in peacekeepers. They don't have to be UN blue helmets, but bring in an army from a third country that just does not have a dog in this fight, but maybe that the Russians don't hate, like, for example, the Indians and have the Indians stand on what was supposed to be the gray zone, this no man's land demarcation border of de-escalation in the war between Ukraine proper and the Donbass here and bring in peacekeepers and force the Ukrainian government to stop their side of the violence. If they were really trying, they could have come up with something other than the war that they engaged in. So that ain't just, I hope you can tell some disclaimer. Well, I don't care if you could tell. Is this not a disclaimer? I'm just telling you, that's my opinion. You know, damn Vladimir Putin for what he's done and the people that he's killed in this thing. It's completely crazy and wrong. And it is true. I have a conflict of interest there. My wife has family in Odessa and their lives are in danger. But that's not why I'm saying this. Hell, I'm sure that her family probably doesn't like the position on everything I just told you for the last two hours or whatever it was to get to this point. I'm, I'm sure they, they're not fans of that. I'm just explaining my conflict of interest where I have one, but all opinions here are mine and as honest as I can cut them anyway. And I try to add as many caveats as I can because what the hell, things are complicated. But now all that said, not saying the wars, that those are reasonable excuses for launching a war. I am saying, go and read them. And everything he says in there is completely rational. It's not the ravings of some madman, you know? Uh, certainly in terms of all of what he claims are the provocations of the American side. Now, the part where he's denying Ukrainian sovereignty, you know, I think he says like, this is a made up country kind of thing, but of course it is. But of course all countries are to a degree or another, but he says, listen, Lenin and Stalin drew these borders and for whatever stupid reason included new Russia, uh, you know, the Eastern four provinces uh, in Ukraine instead of in Russia. Why they do that? Who knows? But there are commies and commies do crazy things. Then he says, the second crazy thing the commies did was when Khrushchev gave Crimea over to Ukraine. And look what trouble that caused. Then he says, the third crazy thing that the commies did was they gave Ukraine independence. Now, as we talked about before, all in all, that was a good thing. That was the death knell, finally, of the Soviet Union's existence. That was one of the greatest things that ever happened in history and almost uh, bloodless. I mean, for the size of the empire that fell, you know, yeah, they had skirmishes break out in Georgia and Azerbaijan and things. But, you know, this is not um, what people imagined the fall of the Soviet Union might look like, you know. But anyway, regardless of that, his point of view was that this was a major error that the Soviet Union shouldn't have done. But then he says something like, nonetheless, 
it was what it was. I mean, he didn't get here until the year 2000, right? So it was like, well, whatever. And we tried to let them be independent. But the thing is, they're not independent, are they? He says Kiev is a colony of the United States of America. And that was true. And this isn't just a client. I mean, this is a sock puppet regime of the United States. It has so much influence over everything they do ever since the coup. And they're completely dependent on America for all of this stuff. And he says, this is intolerable that the situation is going to remain. All I did was I told you, promise not to bring them into NATO. I want real guarantees you're not going to bring them into NATO or any more spread of the NATO alliance east. And I want, you know, real security guarantees for the people of the Donbass and a real implementation of the peace deal and all these things. These are all reasonable demands. And then CJ Americans should really take note that he paraphrased Bill Clinton, W. Bush, and Barack Obama in his declaration of war, quite sarcastically and deliberately. He paraphrased Bill Clinton on Kosovo and talking about the right of the autonomy of this province, of this different ethnicity to break away. Then he paraphrased W. Bush about weapons of mass destruction because the uh, Budapest Memorandum, so I always forget which one was Bucharest and Budapest. It was the Budapest Memorandum was the one from 94 where the Ukrainians agreed to give up their nukes and the Russians agreed not to attack them and Britain and America signed on to them, uh, signed on to it. But they agree and they're not just to give up their nukes, which they really were the Soviet Union's nukes um, that they couldn't use anyway because uh, of the safeguards on them and so forth. But they give up their nukes and they also promise not to try to get nukes either or make nukes either. And Zelensky in January had said, I think at the Munich conference, had said that, yeah, well, you know, if they're going to invade us, well, maybe we'll just break our end of the Budapest Memorandum too, which was, you know, widely regarded in the official American press and everything. There's no question what he meant by that, was that maybe we'll go ahead and get nuclear weapons. That's absurd. How the hell is he going to get nuclear weapons? He's not going to be able to spool up a nuclear weapons program in any reasonable period of time that wouldn't cause a war and get bombed off the face of the earth by the Russians first anyway. And the Americans, regardless of whatever, however cynical you think they are, they are not handing over atom bombs to the Ukrainian government, nor are they going to allow any of their friends to. And you can't just make an atom bomb easily. I mean, you can, but it just takes a lot of effort to do it. And you can't do it without building yourself a factory to do it in and all these kinds of things in a way that are that would be completely transparent to the Russians. So this is just, you know, I make a threat to kick Andre the Giant's ass when I know he's going to take it as an excuse to hit me. But I also know that there's nothing I can do to him. You know what I mean? Like that was it was a stupid thing to say. It was just a stupid thing to say. And then Putin goes, oh, you're going to make nukes, huh? You hear that, everybody? Weapons of mass destruction. Well, everybody knows that if you have a threat from weapons of mass destruction, you can just go right in there. Isn't that right, America? And then he also paraphrased Barack Obama on the responsibility to protect the poor civilians of Benghazi. Only in this case, it's the poor civilians of the Donbass. And so here were the Americans just lie. The American government just lies the American people into these wars and lies to the world. To justify them, he mocks the Americans and says, oh, I can't do this, huh? Well, here's your justifications as paper thin as they are. 
for me to do exactly what you do. So how do you like that? And he did it. So again, I'm not saying that America put Russia in the position where they had to do this. They didn't have to do it. But I am saying the Americans put the Ukrainians in this position where they're getting their asses kicked right now. And it ain't right, man. You know, um, if you go back to it's amazingly got what 15 million views or 25 million views or some wonderful thing on um, YouTube is John Mearsheimer's speech from 2015, where he explains that this crisis is all America's fault. And, you know, he wrote that in 2014 in Foreign Affairs. He has the stature. He can write that in Foreign Affairs. And it was Gideon Rose who published it. And I interviewed him about it then. I've been doing this a long time. And uh, I interviewed him about it then. He gave this great speech in 2015. And um, the most memorable part of it is he says, America's making all these promises to Ukraine, but America's leading Ukraine down the primrose path. And Ukraine is going to get wrecked. Meaning, we are going to provoke Russia into invading and crushing and destroying this country in some large part. And we're not going to come to their aid. Not really. We're not going to help them win. We're not going to put our troops at risk. And I think the presumption there was, and this is probably still fair, that ultimately the Russians are a hell of a lot stronger than the Ukrainians and are going to win the war. Um, We'll see what happens with this upcoming winter offensive now. But certainly that was the presumption of a lot of people, even on the Hawks side at the beginning of the war, was that they'd be backing an insurgency against Russia very quickly rather than a state army still in battle, as here we see, you know, 10 months later. But um, so there you go. I mean, that's what I mean by provoked America's role in this thing. It's essentially Bill Clinton, W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden just did nothing but disregard the Russian subjections to all of these policies. You know, they would say, listen, again, you guys are being paranoid. I mean, come on, who really thinks that? We're expanding NATO into Europe, into Eastern Europe, because we're going to attack Russia. Like, I don't believe that. And we're going to attack Russia. You know, that's crazy. They still got 6,000 nukes and you can't shoot them down. They got 1,500 ready to go. You can't shoot those down either. All right. They destroy our civilization in the afternoon. We're in no position whatsoever to invade Russia. Come on. But then... Their point of view is, yeah, well, then why do you keep expanding your alliance right up to our border? And then the Americans go, you're just being paranoid, man. We're really only doing this so that there are no more border disputes between Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, and and, uh, Romania. We want everybody to be part of our alliance to spread stability. And, you know, eventually the European Union economic community comes in, and then everybody's all integrated, and eventually this... United States of Europe at peace under American tutelage and protection. And and you guys are just crazy to think that we're doing this to you. That's a fit. But what about all those color-coded revolutions, right? What about the anti-missile missile launchers in Romania and Poland? And what about all these military exercises? And what about all these threats? And, oh, come on, you're just being crazy, Right. And I have this too from people inside the government and there's great quotes of them saying that like, yes, you know, we just don't take their concerns seriously. We really don't. And I tried to tell them we should really take their concerns seriously. And you know what they told me? We don't take your concerns seriously either about their concerns being taken seriously. Just forget it. America, we can do what we want. 
And the first thing is, one, they're paranoid. But then two is, what are they going to do about it? Nothing. So we're number one. As H.W. Bush said, what we say goes. That's the world law. But then, of course, the reality is, no. People have red lines. You know, you could get, one could get a committed engineering student from Cairo to kamikaze a jetliner into a building and die just to kick off a war that's going to kill a million more of people just like him. If only it'll hurt us. Sounds kind of crazy. People do that. Ho Chi Minh, he goes, you know what? Read me loud and clear now. I don't care how many of us you kill. We're never going to give up. You hear me? Ever. So keep on bombing. Red line crossed. No white man is going to colonize this land. And we're going to keep killing and dying until you quit. Period. And America took them up on it. Killed somewhere between three and five million people before they gave up. And he never quit. Red line. Just think what America would fight for. America go to war over the drop of a hat. We're risking a nuclear war right now. We have a situation where at least our government's stated objective is to arm up Ukraine's conventional force powerful enough to drive Russia completely out of Ukraine and including Crimea too. As much as it takes, as long as it takes. But we're not committed enough to put our army and Marines in there to get in a naval battle in the Black Sea with the Russians. But we're willing to, so we're only that committed. We're willing, but we're willing to help the Ukrainians deliver the ultimate humiliating defeat onto the Russians in a situation where it's already been demonstrated the Russians are not going to settle for the status quo or anything less. And then, as everybody knows, an atom bomb is just a bigger bomb. Now, I'm not saying that I predict there's going to be nuclear war, but I am saying that the Russians have said over and over again, Vladimir Putin himself in his original declaration of war, said nobody, no other major power better intervene in this war. We can completely destroy you and you know it. That's a rough paraphrase, but he was talking about, I will nuke cities in North America. That's what he meant. And his foreign minister, his defense minister and deputy defense minister, and now Yahoo, loudmouth, uh, former stand-in president, Dmitry Medvedev, have consistently, or well, not consistently, but repeatedly talked about the possible use of nuclear weapons in this war. Now, it's true, too, that um, I'm happy to report that Putin recently said, oh, come on, we're not going to do that. And that, um, in fact, Recep Erdogan, the uh, presidente, I guess, of Turkey, also said that he'd spoken to both sides and nobody's using nuclear weapons in this thing and everybody shut up about that. But the fact is we've been talking about that, not just we like at antiwar.com, but the people in power have been discussing the danger of this thing going nuclear. So we're not willing to put our army on the ground there, but we're willing to risk nuclear war. And 
quite frankly, if one or if the Russians say, all right, we have to, you give us no choice, and they use a few atom bombs to try to win this war, I think we all die. I don't think you can have just a few atom bombs go off and then NATO just sits there. I think if that happens, NATO like nukes Belarus or something crazy. And they've talked about that in war games. If Russia nukes Ukraine, we nuke Belarus. Huh? They're psychos. These people are just crazy. And But once that starts happening, when, there's no real difference between tactical nuclear weapons and strategic nuclear weapons. That means battlefield versus city killers. But once you got these mushroom clouds going off, you can kill a city with an atom bomb too. It was just a tactical nuke, but yeah, we killed a medium-sized city with it. Dropped it on NATO headquarters or whatever it is. That's it, man. Every major city in America and Russia and probably China too go up. You know, certainly in all the Northern Hemisphere, it goes up. You're talking about uh, World War II worth of casualties in the first few hours. So is our is our best hope basically that Russia, I mean, obviously we wished this war didn't happen. We wished that Putin hadn't escalated uh, the way he did at, near the beginning of this year. But I mean, now with the situation that we're in is maybe our best hope uh, that he's able to finish this war off relatively quickly and, you know, that the U S will finally, you know, cooler and wiser heads will prevail and they'll throw uh, their sock puppet Zelensky under the bus having, you know, now that he's outlived his usefulness, you know, and maybe, uh, you know, obviously the people in Ukraine could then, Uh, stop bearing the brunt of all this and you know we could step back a bit further from the brink and maybe uh, reestablish somewhat more reasonable u.s russian relations or is that as modest as that sounds is that now at this point like utopian fantasizing oh no i mean i'm far more utopian than that i mean i want to cease fire right now i think they need to negotiate right now you keep donetsk and luhansk at least southern Lahansk, I don't know, and the and Mariupol, and the so-called land bridge to Crimea, fresh water for Crimea, and then leave everybody else the hell alone. Stop the killing right now. Blink into Geneva right now. And frankly, like, Sergei Lavrov ought to be in Geneva sitting at an empty table with a sign like Bugs Bunny saying, I'm waiting for Antony Blinken to show up so that we can negotiate an end to this thing. And, you know, the problem is this thing has gone on so long. We're now, by the time we're talking about this here in the end of November, back a couple of months ago, Putin declared that he had annexed not just Donetsk and Luhansk, but also Zaporozhye and Kherson too, the four easternmost provinces of Ukraine. And then, of course, he doesn't have military control over all of any of those provinces he just lost, they lost in, in early to mid-September, they lost the entire northern half of Lahansk, including all around Arkiv. Um, and they, you know, essentially abandoned uh, the city of Kherson uh, rather than get pummeled. I think they had to withdraw from it. Now, it's true, as as Colonel McGregor says, the Russians are not trying to just gain ground and hold it. They're trying to destroy the enemy army. So that then they can stand wherever they want, right? So they can take 
ground and and uh, lose it to an ebb and flow. A strategic retreat is not necessarily uh, defeat, right? But I mean, where we stand right now, as as we're recording this, I guess at any time in the next few weeks, yeah, I don't know, anytime, the Russians could launch their major winter invasion. That's what they have planned, apparently, according to real military experts like McGregor and Daniel Davis. They are building up massive forces that call up. See, after they lost um, northern Lahansk in in uh, the weekend of September tenth uh, and eleventh, there, the the Russians announced that they're calling up all their reserves and expanding conscription. And their reserves are 300,000 men. So the reservists go to man other places while the active duty force then can be almost entirely redirected to the front. And then with expanded conscription, that's, you know, however many men after that, I don't know that how they're, how they're adding. We're talking about what was essentially like a 400 man or 400,000 man army before. And they had sent in about 120,000 men. Well, now they're apparently ready to send in about another 120,000 men or maybe a, a bit more than that to double their invasion. And, you know, this thing started in February when things were, I guess, already beginning to kind of thaw out there. But now I think they're waiting for, and I don't know when the first real hard freeze is there, man. Um, it may have already come and gone. But the idea is that once it gets really cold, then the massive invasion begins because then they don't have to worry about getting stuck in the mud because it's all so frozen solid that now they're no longer bound to the roads. They don't have to fight their way through towns. They can just go through the wilderness, go wherever they want to outflank their enemy and so forth. And with a massive new amount of soldiers to do it. So I don't, you know, I I don't like predicting the future. I ain't that good at it. You know, um, I don't know. I, I did read a thing that said that the Russians seem to be waiting and giving the, because there, there has been some talk of negotiations. It seems like they're kind of pausing and to see whether there will be a negotiation. I mean, it's so funny because speaking of, you know, our second Cold War with Russia here, that we're all these amateur Kremlinologists analyzing our own government. I mean, goofy old, uh, demented old Biden. I mean, we know he has his opinions and so forth, and he is the one in the chair. But then again, um, it's Blinken and Sullivan and presumably Austin and whichever their deputies, I don't know, his chief of staff, whoever it is that has the most influence over what he's told and, and what he knows to do. Um, we kind of just have to guess what's going on. But, you know, there's a been a few statements now by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, saying, I think now's a good time to negotiate. Look, you did a good job in Kherson. You forced them out of Kherson which is north of, northwest of the Crimean Peninsula there. Uh, you forced him out. Now's a good time to start talking. He sounds to me like he's worried about what's about to happen. And, and he also sounds like he's implying, look, kid, you're going to lose Mariupol, okay? You're not going to be able to take that back. You ought to quit while you're ahead. You ought to quit while you've only lost as much as you have, is what he's saying. And then he's complaining to the New York Times that Blinken and Sullivan, the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor, they disagree. Oh, the State Department weenies disagree, do they? When the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff says that now it's time to negotiate. huh? And this keeps happening in our era. 
you know, I won't tick them all off, but there have been many times where it's the military telling these dweebs that like, you go fight tough guy. No, we're not going to Iran. No, we're not going to, you know, cross this line or that line that the diplomats and the, the White House, you know, NSC officials and so forth want. So here's Millie, apparently, man, I don't know exactly what's going on. And I didn't even read the articles in the Times that carefully to tell you the truth. I probably should. Um, but here he, uh, it appears that the Pentagon is making it known that they've had about enough of this. And, but then there's very little progress. I mean, we've had the CIA director met with the head of Russian intelligence in Ankara a couple of weeks ago, and then he went to Kiev. I don't know how much was accomplished with that, but that looks like a little bit of shuttle diplomacy there. And then they had talks toward the having of talks in regards to re-upping and saving the new START treaty, which, you know, I mentioned that uh, Trump tore up the INF treaty. He also tore up the Open Skies Treaty, and he had promised to let New Start expire. And this is the greatest thing that Joe Biden ever did in his life, I think, probably was save the New Start Treaty that uh, that um, Trump was to sabotage there. Um, it's the last standing treaty limiting overall strategic stockpiles. That is the three-stage rockets and the city-killing thermonuclear bombs. And if without all those salt one and two and this and that from when you were younger, those are all gone. It's nothing but new start now. That's the only one we have. And um, anyway, they're starting to negotiate toward having some talks to see about trying to extend it and keep it. Thank God. Um, but these are just little bitty tidbits of talks. We need a full court push. I mean, you know, I understand everybody's so distracted by so many things. But I just, this is one of those times where I can't, it seems like, you know, to borrow your record analogy here, that right now should be the one where the needle just scratches off the record and everybody stops dancing and drinking and pays attention for just a second. Like, wait, did that guy just say the N word or what? You know what I mean? Like at a party, like, what? Like, dude, what are we doing? We got 8 billion people in the world. It seems like if just some small number of us insisted that they wrap this thing up, then we could do it, right? Like, is that too much to ask? There are 350 million Americans, 350 million. We can't just get a couple of million people to decide that this is the most important thing in the world, that this is what we care about. We have to force our government to force an end to this thing. We're fighting a proxy war right on Russia's border. Look at that map. Kharkiv is 300 miles from Moscow. That's from Austin to Oklahoma City. Okay. And we're fighting a proxy war. Look, when we fought, the Russians did back Ho Chi Minh. There was a bit of a proxy war there going on, not just against communism, but with the Russians playing their part in that war. But there was an entire China between Vietnam and Russia, we weren't provoking, we weren't not risking war with Russia over Vietnam, right? Something, you know, car backfires in West Berlin, duck and cover. But in Vietnam, we could have killed every last one of them and the Russians were not going to bomb us over that, right? But this is right on their Western border. And as I know, you're well aware, there are no natural defenses around St. Petersburg or Moscow, worth the damn and all. They got no hills, no rivers, 
no mountains, just wide open plains for armies to march into Russia. It's happened to them over and over again. And they've died by the tens of millions, tens of millions at a time defending that land. And it just seems like we're pushing our luck here, man, in a way that we just don't have to do. And it sucks because, you know, I can tell even when I talk about Yemen now, they really succeeded. They really did. CJ, they already changed the whole narrative. There's, I guess, semi-famously now this week, an article by Joe, uh, pardon me, George Packer of the New Yorker, um, who famously was one of the enforcers of liberal orthodoxy in supporting Iraq War II 20 years ago, who's now saying, oh, you hush about the terror wars. That's all. Why you got to bring up old shit? You know, we have a new thing now where, look, the Russians are the empire, not us. And we're on the side of the good guys like heroes. And so this is the American foreign policy doctrine. We're, remember that time we saved France from the Nazis? It's like that. And so in this war, thanks a lot, Vladimir Putin, he's essentially completely redeemed the imperial narrative, at least in Washington, D.C. and in New York City. You know, uh, Ben Rhodes, who famously coined the term the blob for the foreign policy establishment, who exemplifies it himself. He was um, Barack Obama's right hand man, deputy national security advisor, but really his best buddy in coming up with this stuff. Ben Rhodes told the New York Times back when the war was starting in February, like, oh, man, that's so great. Like, oh, what a load off. We are finally redeemed. After Afghanistan and Iraq, and we look so bad, never mind Somalia, Libya, Syria, Yemen, where genocide continues, people starving to death, um, you know, under American blockade. Same thing with the sanctions against Afghanistan in the midst of their famine going on there. But anyway, that's all might as well be the 20th century, which might as well be the 18th century now, because now we are completely redeemed because now we are backing uh, rebel fighters on the ground against a greater force. And by the way, too, not only like spiritually is the empire redeemed there, but this is also the blueprint. And it's one of the reasons that I should have known much better what was coming is I wasn't reading the Post and the Times very well last December. I was focused still on Middle Eastern stuff and I kind of really dropped the ball there because later I went back and found where they said over and over again that our strategy right now is to tell the Russians, you better not. But then it don't matter that much if they do, because what we want to do, see, is we're real clever, see. And what we want to do is we want to um, back an insurgency in Ukraine against the Russians. It'll be just like when we backed the Mujahideen against the Russians in Afghanistan in the 1980s. and makes us the good guys again, and it's going to be great. Again, they imagine that if Russia would invade, that they would win very quickly. I, I did too, by the way. I, you know, that was the standard presumption at the time. But what was missing in there was we're going to try really hard to negotiate a way out of this to prevent the worst crisis that could possibly be imagined would be a hot war breaking out right on Russia's border and with American participation in this way and all this stuff. Nobody wants that. They did not say that. Their policy was, Putin, you better not. And then, hey, 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 if you do, we're, we're preparing a trap. And now here's the thing about that. You might remember, this is just three months after America finally left Afghanistan in humiliating defeat. Three months later, 
after we're finally done losing after a 20 year occupation in the name of cleaning up the mess that they caused from their policies in Afghanistan, supporting the Mujahideen in the 1980s and 90s, supporting the Taliban in the 90s, and then the war against them in the 2000s and teens. They only just pulled out three months before, and they already got Afghanistan in their mouth. And this is the model for what we want to do, and not in Central Asia now, now in Europe. I mean, barely, but still. And instead of Mujahideen, it's a bunch of Nazis. Not that the entire Ukrainian army is a bunch of Nazis, but a lot of them are. The Azov Regiment, the Right Sector, and Adar Battalion, and all of these groups that uh, come out of the Maidan protests and that really trace their lineage back to those who participated in the Holocaust and served Hitler in World War II and who were backed by the CIA during the Cold War. Uh, which I was just, right before I talked to you today, I was just finishing up a formerly secret CIA history of all of that. And then you know what else that they were saying too? They go, yeah, this is like also what we did in Syria. You remember Obama's dirty war in Syria that led directly to the rise of the Islamic State Caliphate. And then we had to launch a wreck war three to destroy the Islamic State, the ISIS Caliphate, at the cost of a number, uh, another half a million killed in Syria and Iraq. It was absolute catastrophe for humanity. And they go, yeah, wasn't that clever? You see how we did that weakened Assad? And, and it cost the Iranians a lot of money because they had to come and help him. And, and remember, even when Russia began to intervene um, outright in the fall of 2015 in Syria, they go, hey, 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 this will be like Afghanistan. Right now, when we intervene in Syria, it's pure profit, question mark, question mark, question mark. But when Russia does it, he, 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 they're bogging themselves down and bleeding themselves to bankruptcy, just like we did to them, just like we helped bin Laden do to them, and just like uh, America helped bin Laden do to America for the last 20 years. Now look at us. We're doing it to the Russians again. He, he, he. They said that in Syria. They said it over and over again last December and January and February in the lead up to this war. That was their ideal here, was not preventing the war was not putting NATO membership for Ukraine on the table. Absolutely not. Didn't I tell you about my open door? My door is open. Forget that. We'd rather dump in a bunch of shoulder-fired surface-to-air and surface-to-surface you know, missiles, anti-tank missiles, and take you out that way. Bog you down and bleed you to bankruptcy. Weaken Putin, as they said over and over again. I just found it in my footnotes this morning. Remember, Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Austin, the Secretary of Defense, both said, yeah, we want to weaken Russia. And then the White House put out a report in the Washington Post that, oh, uh, Biden chewed out Blinken and um, and Austin for that. He didn't want them to say that. And uh, yeah. And then like two weeks later, they put it out. Oh, we were just saying that because we had to say that. But we really did mean it, that that's what we're trying to do is just weaken Russia, bog them down, hopefully weaken them so much that Putin could even eventually be overthrown. The arrogance of these people is just, it's unbelievable. You couldn't make this stuff up about them. Yeah, they they really are like psychopaths where they're just so um, reckless, like, or or maybe more like sociopaths, I guess. My amateur psychology uh, understanding is that the sociopaths, both of them don't have consciences, but that sociopaths tend to be uh, more kind of like impulsive where and just you know reckless of of consequences, whereas a psychopath is more likely to be at least somewhat kind of calculating about it, 
And it's like Putin seems like more of, of, of a psychopath if he's anything where he's he's very, you know, in his way for as evil as he might be. Like he's he's calculating and, and rational most of the time. But it seems like that just the current generation of the American establishment are just they're they're believing their own propaganda and they just are completely impulsive and reckless and, you know, just don't it, it's not even number four on number four or five on their list. As far as worrying about, you know, things spiraling out of control or worrying about blowback or, you know, worrying about, well, if we did actually instigate uh, as far fetched as it is, if we did actually instigate uh, an overthrow of Putin's government or something like that, uh, how do we know it's not going to make things much worse? How do we know some guy who, you know, makes him look like a Girl Scout um, doesn't ultimately end up taking over or whatever? How do we know? Um, Obviously, uh, governments that have nukes. One of the times when they're likely to use them is if they feel that their regime is in existential uh, danger, you know, so. Well, look, they take whatever lessons of history they want. Oh, Munich, Munich, Munich. You just want to give in and appease Hitler. Well, what about Versailles, Versailles, Versailles? You just want to create the next Hitler because you like having Hitlers to fight or because you just really suck at diplomacy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Scott, I really appreciate um, you being so generous with your time uh, and sh- uh, sharing all your expertise and everything like that. It's been really cool. I know uh, listeners to my show are going to very much appreciate it as well, but I'd better let you get back to that book that you're cranking away at on the, on all the stuff we've been talking about. Um, but you know, I want to direct everybody, of course, to uh, Libertarian Institute and anti-war and is there anything else uh, you want to plug or you want me to link to anything like that uh sure well um my uh, radio show in los angeles i live in austin but i'm on the radio in la and uh the show's now been moved to 2 30 eastern uh, sorry pacific time uh on thursdays and that's anti-war radio and then i have a podcast the scott horton show i got 5,800 something interviews for you going back to 2003 at uh, scotthorton.org and at all the Spotify and iTunes and all those things. And then uh, I wrote some books, uh, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And the latest is a collection of interviews called Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And you can find out all about those at scotthorton.org. Oh, and I I should never uh, forget to mention this. I usually skip it for some reason, but I shouldn't. Uh, the great Ron Paul, the Scott Horton Show interviews from 2004 to 2019, which I'm also very proud of. And all that's at scotthorton.org. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I, I have a feeling this this episode is going to be uh, very, very popular and very well downloaded amongst my listeners. Okay, cool, man. Well, uh, thank you so much for hearing me out. World from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Went. And I'm Rick Schwartz. 
and we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.